This episode, Justice League America, number 42, and Justice League Europe, number 18. Cover dated September 1990. And welcome to the 42nd episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name is the Irredeemable Shag, and I am your host. But guess what? I have brought along some friends. In fact, each episode, I invite two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues of JLI. Now, we'll chat with my second co-host in a little bit. But for now, my first co-host today is a returning guest to the show and a longtime friend of the network. He also happens to be a sucker for lost causes. This guy's favorite characters include people like Red Tornado... Hawkman, Cyborg, Doom Patrol, Deadman, and Firestorm. That's a whole lot of canceled series between them, folks. What a glutton for punishment. Folks, please help me welcome Mr. Doug Zawisha. Welcome back to the New York Embassy, Doug. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? I'm doing great, Shag. Thanks for the warm welcome there. Hi, everybody. <laughs> long time no see. As Shag mentioned, fan of the network. Absolutely. Long time fan of the network and fan of Lost Causes. So I don't know what that says about the network. But, well, I was going to say, it's, that just got Ryan Daly painted all over it, right? <laughs> Absolutely. There you go. I appeared on his show more than once, right? So there you go. Lost causes. Don't worry. We're not going to offend him. He hasn't listened to the show since the first episode when he was on it. So that's fine. Would you? (laughs) (laughs) And and some of the other characters that you left off of that list include the Will Payton Starman, El Diablo, Hawk and Dove. And I'd say if anyone's looking at the cover, you get the idea. I'm a big (laughs) fan of the lesser lights. And as the saying goes, every character is somebody's favorite. And if they're not someone's favorite, odds are I really like them a bunch. (laughs) So you're going to start that Brother Power the Geek blog anytime soon? Oh, no time soon, sir. (laughs) Someone else has got to have him as a favorite because I don't want him. (laughs) Right. That's fair. So this is a super cool issue because, yeah, it's full of guest stars, including all those, uh, as you call them, lesser lights, although two of them are TV stars now, uh, that were, you know, big deals in the 90s. And really, DC was making a big push on them. And so having them in the Just League issue was really pretty cool. And it's a fun cover too so this is exciting this is and we'll get to it in a little bit but this is a very special issue for me now i don't mean like after school special but like it's just this issue holds a lot of meaning for me and so doug asked to be on this like six years ago he has to be on this episode and probably completely forgot until i messaged him and goes hey you ready to record i got back like a who's this new phone kind of response <laughs> but anyway, before we get into this we need to thank our sponsors folks this episode of the jli podcast is sponsored in part by instocktrades.com instock trades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping on orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we'll select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the in-stock trades library. Usually, it's tied in the month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. Now, this month, Will Payton is featured in this Justice League America issue, so I went for the James Robinson Starman book. Now, technically, I know it's a different version of Starman, but there are several surprising connections to the Will Payton era. And, and... One of the characters in this collected edition I'm about to tell you about is directly responsible for making me a lifelong fan of the Giffen DiMatteis Justice League America series. Who is it? Stay tuned to find out, folks. So my pick is Starman Compendium number one trade paperback. 
So, writer, of course, is James Robinson. Art is mostly by Tony Harris, covers by Tony Harris. This collects the first, oh my gosh, uh, well, the first 42 issues, or really 43 issues of the Starman series, plus a whole bunch of extra stuff, some giant size, 80 pages, annual seeker files, some showcase stuff, Power Shazam, the Shade miniseries. It is a massive tome of 1,448 pages. Oh my gosh. Now, normally, these things are hardcovers, so we're talking about a pretty high price ticket. This time, this one is a soft cover, so it's only normally $59.99, but with in-stock trades, you can get it 42% off, so it's only $34.79. $34.79 for 1,448 pages of freaking Starman, an incredible series. So I, I, you can't beat this, folks, so definitely check this out. Now, I believe you're a fan of Starman, is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I bought Starman every which way. I Floppies, digitals, trade paperbacks, and then the omnibuses from a while back. So looking at this one, I was like, maybe I'll pass on this one just because of the fact that it's trade paperback. You know, they need to do this in hardcover. That'd be, that would be a lap killer in hardcover with a a thousand four hundred forty-eight pages, right? Right, right. I'm holding out for the absolute. Oh, wow. Okay. That would be impressive. I got to imagine uh, the spine on a fourteen hundred page, you know, soft cover. That's got to be some pretty strong glue. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Yeah. Have, Have you actually seen this thing? I have not, but I imagine it's as tall as me. <laughs> uh, well, uh, no, I think you got a little bit on it. Rob might not, but you do. Uh, so it, 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 it's it's a trade paperback. And like you said, it's got to have some really strong glue because I don't know how many reads it's actually going to put up. I don't know if it's designed as a more of a coffee table book, a discussion piece, or an actual read piece. But honestly, for thirty four seventy nine, you can't go wrong with it. If you don't have the Starman stuff in your collection, my friends, this is a great way to get it, especially if you're a tactile reader and you need something in your fingers while you're reading. You know, this is the kind of thing that you could use, like the mafia would use to like tie to somebody's ankle and throw them in a river or something. Yeah, like that. yeah, yeah. Or, by the way, Doug has a long history, by the way, of kidnapping people in his basement. Yep. Um, I mean, speak, <laughs> speaking from experience personally, by the way. So I could see you inviting someone down to your basement and just dropping this in their lap and they're not going anywhere. Absolutely. Stuff. One on each foot. <laughs> and, well, wh- and you know what? If I buy two, I'll be spending more than 50 bucks and I'll get free shipping. Boom. Look at you. You know your sales pitch. I'm impressed, sir. <laughs> so what are you bringing to the table for in-stock trades this month? Well, what I'm bringing to the table is uh, it's a Marvel book because, right, we're talking Marvel. I'm talking about sure. the Exiles Complete Collection Trade Paperback Volume 1. Uh, it, this says it's a new printing, but I believe it's maybe from 2018. But still, it's a great read. If folks are dialing into the Disney Plus What If, this is kind of a what if through the X-Men lens. The, the, the tech the solicit text starts with the original alternate reality dimension hoppers uh, led by blank the fan favorite character from age of apocalypse these exiles are from different dimensions so you've actually got some characters here you've got a, a real different take on thunderbird you've got character who is the son of nightcrawler and scarlet witch or daughter rather of nightcrawler and scarlet witch marinate on that for a second Think of the visuals and you will not be disappointed because the visuals are delivered by Mike McCone, who is the artist of this Justice League America book. Perfect. Uh, so the Exiles book is written by Judd Winnick. Art is by Mike McCone. Uh, as I've mentioned, Jim Califari, or Califari. I can't ever get that man's name correct, but you guys know Jim. You've seen him, Aquaman, uh, for a while. And there we go. To Secret Six, I think, maybe. Might have done a stint in Suicide Squad. So those two are the artists, McCone and Califari. We'll say. 
Uh, it's a soft cover, 480 pages, cover price $34.99. So just 20 cents more than yours actual price, Shag. Yeah. Which means the in-stock trades price is $20, 22, 29 cents, 42% off of that cover. So put these two together. Look at that. Free shipping. There we go. This Exiles collection is perfect because they've got a couple of covers in there that are actually homages to Justice League International with the whole team standing there looking up, which is great. And also, you know, the whole sledding, you know, it's like sliders, you know, the old TV show sliders. So sliding into other dimensions is sort of fits with the Justice League Europe issue we're covering this month as well. So it's a great pick. Well, thank you, Doug, for bringing that. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the stories within it, as you touched on, Shag, uh, the sliding aspect, there's a lot of done in ones. So if you're not sitting down and reading 400 pages straight, you're going to be okay with this one because you can read a story, put it down, you know, go do something else, come back to it later. I fully endorse The Exiles. It, that series, it, I, I, I went into it expecting nothing and had an absolute blast and just burned through tons of issues in a short period of time because I was just having so much fun. So for this and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. We also need to take a second to thank you folks at home uh, who support us on Patreon because running the Firewater Podcast Network with so many shows requires a lot of online hosting and other services. When we needed some help running the network, we reached out to you guys and you guys really stepped up to the plate on Patreon. And I got to tell you, we sincerely appreciate it. And without your help, the network still would not be on the air. So if you're enjoying shows like the JLI podcast, please consider going out to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash FW podcast. And if you choose to support the network at certain tiers, you get thanked on your favorite shows, just like these folks who asked to be mentioned on the JLI podcast. Our thanks to Bill Beer, Dr. Chris Lewis, David Ace Gutierrez, DC Dave, Devin Clancy, George Van Note, Gord Tolton, John Ross Haynes, Mark Baker Wright, Martin Gray, Matt Ev, Maxwell Draver, Mike Zumka, Patrick McMullen, Rudy Gustillo, Sean Ross, and Tim Price. Again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. All right, folks. Now, what I need is for you to go out on social media. Go out uh, on your Facebooks, on your Twitters, whatever. Use our hashtag fwpodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. I want to hear your thoughts on this issue of Just League America. Also, the issue of Just League Europe we're going to be covering. I want to hear your thoughts on Will Payton, Hawk and Dove, El Diablo, all of it. So, or just make fun of Doug's last name. I mean, it's super easy. It's like low-hanging fruit. Absolutely. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. So anyway, let us know your thoughts on these issues because it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around the show. Now, at this part of the episode, we would normally uh, ask Doug how he fell in love with the JLI, but you can just go back to episode number seven. Yeah, Doug gets invited to all the good ones, by the way. He got invited to the first international episode, too. Go back there and listen to Doug's origin with the JLI and his favorite members. For now, though, we're going to go ahead and jump into an issue that's very special to me. Uh, you know, I, earlier I said it's not afternoon school special. But maybe it is. It feels a little afternoon school special for me. But anyway, it's Justice League America, number 42 from DC Comics, cover date is September 1990, on the shelves July 17th, 1990. Cover price is $1, four shiny quarters, and the cover art is by Adam Hughes. It's the only Adam Hughes we're getting in the issue, so enjoy it while you got it, folks. Doug, would you mind describing the cover? Uh, thanks, but but no thanks. No way! <laughs> maybe some other time. That's the dialogue that's on this cover. This cover is, is coming at you and they are proclaiming a special membership drive issue, which of course means there's going to be a lot of great characters in this comic or not. Uh, but, but the cover is showing El Diablo, Will Payton, Starman, Hawk and Dove, all appearing to decline offers of membership from the Justice League as Martian Manhunter and Blue Beetle in the background are stunned to see that Mr. Miracle is back. And as Shag touched on, Adam Hughes gets sole credit for the cover. 
And as, as you mentioned, Shag, this is the only time you're going to see Hughes drawing these characters in anything connected to the Justice League, because uh, at this point, he's sort of the regular artist for Justice League America. So you'd think maybe he would have done the membership drive issue. <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what was going on, but I got to imagine after that massive Despero storyline, he was probably taking a breather. That'd be my guess. Yeah, but I mean, it wasn't like that storyline was big or emotional or, you know, had a whole lot going on, is it? I, I guess you didn't read it. <laughs> but, you know, you make a good point. I hadn't thought about it. Yeah, this is your one chance to see Adam Hughes draw Starman, to draw El Diablo, to draw Hawk and Dove. I didn't even think of it that way. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And and you mentioned that this, co- this comic's cover dated September 90, which is according to Mike's Amazing World, right? So thanks, Mike, wherever you are. I just want to say, seriously, is there another website out there that's more helpful for any sort of comic book research, especially these indexing podcasts? Oh my gosh, Mike's website is invaluable. I used to use him in conjunction with Comic Book DB, but they got bought out. So yeah, Mike's the only name in the game out there right now. Uh, so my, thank you, Mike Voyles, for everything you do to keep that site going, because there is not a podcaster in the land that wouldn't be lost without you. Absolutely. And so this comic came out the same week as Hawk World number four and Flash number 42, both books I was getting in coincidentally at it came out the week before El Diablo 13 and before Hawk and Dove 16, which came out the same week. El Diablo was closing in on, on its end, and Hawk and Dove was, was coasting. It wasn't really doing anything spectacular. And, and Starman itself was heading towards a serious transition of writers. I distinctly remember with this special membership drive issue, I'm like, oh my gosh, there's El Diablo, there's Starman, there's Hawk and Dove. There's going to be more inside. And why didn't I open the cover to see Flash or Hawkman or Hawkwoman involved in this recruitment drive? But at any rate, I got four characters that I was enjoying reading in DC Comics at the time, anyhow. So why do you think that Flash would be in it? Because, I mean, he was already a member of the JLE. Were you expecting him to jump to JLA? Why not? <laughs> because the JLE needs him? <laughs> well, this is a membership drive. I mean, come on. Wally West is a, a red-blooded American. Oh, okay. Well, you know, he would have been happy to see Dove there, that's for sure, because Adam, Adam Hughes made sure to somehow work in a broke-back uh, butt shot of Dove on the cover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, that, that butt shot, um, you ever watch Scrubs, Shag? Uh, I've seen it, yeah. Okay. Do you remember the Todd, the, the lecherous high-fiving surgeon? Oh, geez. Uh, maybe, maybe not. I'm not entirely sure. I, I remember just the main cast. Okay. Well, there was one episode where the, the Todd was walking around. Whenever he'd see a thong, he would be like, thong! And that naturally just popped into my brain when I saw this cover. And the Todd right there going, Thong! <laughs> it certainly does give the appearance of that, doesn't it? Yeah. So, but it's it's Adam Hughes drawing, you know, beautiful people, beautiful men and beautiful women. So it's kind of hard to say no to it. Yeah. And I, I like Hawks. Hey, we're out of here with the, the quick thumb there. Yeah. he's. He, I love that he's got his thumb going. He's literally dragging her by the arm. And it's like, she's trying to be nice. She's like, uh, no thanks. And he's like, forget it. You know, yeah. he's not saying that, but that's the look. Now, I, in your recap, I was reading that, and I, I'll be honest, I never noticed Mr. Miracle, Marshman Hunter, and Blue Beetle in the background before on this cover. In all the years, I've never noticed them on the cover, which is crazy, but it, you know, it's, it's obviously a big deal. It's telling you Mr. Miracle's back, but yeah. totally missed it. Yeah, it's, it's right there in front of you. I know. I know. If it was a snake, it would have bit me. 
So why don't we get inside the issue here? So plot and potentially the breakdowns by Keith Giffen, scripts by J.M.D. Matez, guest penciler is Mike McCone, inker is Jose Marzan Jr., letter is Bob LePan, colorist is Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor is Kevin Dooley, and editor is Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called Solicitations. You want to start us off, buddy? Yeah, yeah. The the issue opens up with uh, Gypsy and Martian Manhunter having the ages-old debate about killing baby Hitler, except in this case, Hitler is actually the sparrow who has devolved into an embryonic stage following the events of the last three issues that I may or may not have read. He <laughs> killed Gypsy's real family and, and more than mangled the Manhunter's Earth family. The Sparrow's rage ended the life of Hank Haywood III, which was uh, the version of Steel from Detroit, uh, Justice League Detroit, and also seemed to kill Mr. Miracle. So following Gypsy and John's chat, John turns to, uh, to have a conversation with Max about the undignified recruitment drive that, that is going on in this issue. The spin through the drive reveals that Blue Beetle and Fire are heading out west. The location is not disclosed, but eagle-eyed readers of 1990s DC Comics might recognize Hector Enriquez and Chewy Salinas from the Taquiera Obregon in Dos Rios, Texas. And if that doesn't ring a bell for anyone, then you weren't reading El Diablo. <laughs> the colorful duo uh, Beetle introduces Fire as Ladybug are there to meet up with. I just tipped it off for y'all. I just spoiled my my dramatic reveal. They're there to meet up with El Diablo. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. And El Diablo actually has a fun reveal at that point. We'll come back to that. Uh, so we're going to cut to a scene somewhere else in the Western United States where Guy Gardner sets about drafting Will Payton, Starman, who reacts to Gardner's outreach with, hey, which hilarity ensues from there. Uh, then we go back to El Diablo, who's chatting with Fire, and the two of them are boring Beetle nearly to tears because they're chatting in Spanish. And then we cut over to Ice and Huntress recruiting Hawk and Dove, who are less than inclined to join, and so much so that they don't even bother to come back for a second page. Sorry <laughs> for the spoilers. Uh, from there, we go to an interlude featuring the great Manga Khan. And wait a minute, wait a minute, Mr. Miracle. Shag, what's going on here? I mean, aside from another interlude with Fire and El Diablo. <laughs> well, speaking of Fire and El Diablo, there's a series of increasingly funny panels where Beetle becomes miserably bored as Fire and El Diablo, as you mentioned, continue to converse only in Spanish and it seems to go for ages. So Guy Gardner then continues his eloquent recruitment technique uh, that everyone should adopt of just basically beating the crap out of Will Payton Starman to try and get him to join the team. Ultimately, each of the recruitment teams are uniquely unsuccessful. Guy appears to have lost his fight with Starman. El Diablo's mission is just a little too different from the League's, and Hawk and Dove rudely declined the invitation, at least according to Ice. Now, back at the embassy, I can finally answer your question, Doug. Back at the embassy, a contingent of folks from the Cluster beam down to Max's office. This includes Oberon, Mangacon, Funky Flashman, Elron, and the shockingly alive Mr. Miracle. While everyone is thrilled to see Scott's alive, Max is understandably frustrated over the deception as they all grieve the death of a Mr. Miracle robot. And then the penny drops. Scott realizes that his wife, Barta, also thinks that he's dead. Uh oh. Next, <laughs> next, Oberon is accosted by Ice for missing Scott's supposed funeral. <laughs> 
Elsewhere, Martian Manhunter expresses an interest in taking a leave of absence from the league. But Batman tells Jean that he doesn't want to take over leading the team from Jean, and he doesn't really want to rejoin the team full-time either, and tells Jean that Jean should just work through it. Back at the embassy, uh, seeing an opportunity, Max negotiates a trade with the Cluster. Manga Khan takes Despero's catatonic fetus away from Earth in exchange for the JLI taking on Elron. That's right, folks. Elron is finally here. And then, in a shocking final splash page... Two new gods appear, Light Ray and Orion, expressing their intention to join the League. Next issue, because you demanded it, the return of Wally Tortellini? <laughs> uh, all right, so there's a lot to unpack in this issue, and it's pretty special for both of us. So why don't you start off? Tell me your, your thoughts on the issue, buddy. Uh, well, before we go too far, I just want to touch on that Despero Elrond thing. Mm-hmm. Kind of neat that they're connected. For those of you longtime Justice League readers, that'll come back. Uh, hopefully we're still doing this at that point or shag. What's your plan there? Um, I'm trying to remember when did Despero was that during Justice League task force? I want to say, yeah. Okay. Well, this, this podcast series will end when the Giffen Dematteis era of JLI ends. And that's um, when you pick up your justice league task force podcast. Um, you know, at that point <laughs> I will have been doing this show for about seven years. I think I'm going to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> whatever, whatever. <laughs> Um, being that this was a summer comic and I don't know how, how dialed in anyone's ears are or how much folks have paid attention to anything I've said on, on Twitter or in my reviews at various websites, but I have this thing that I call a box fan read. Uh, when I was a kid, we didn't have air conditioning and there would be summer days where the, the most we could do to cool off was to do nothing mm. to just lay down on the floor in front of a box fan. And frequently if we were laying down on the floor, the best way to not fall asleep was to read a comic. <laughs> so this would have been one of those comics that I would have taken, found a fan somewhere and just laid down and read because it would have come out in July. So this comic combined with uh, with the DC Next Wave, I forget what how they were branding it, but they had a bunch of heroes that they had released after Crisis and Legends into their own series like Animal Man and Starman and Captain Adam, Hawk and Dove, and eventually we got to El Diablo here. Hawk and Dove, Starman, and El Diablo were in my reading list. Mm-hmm. I was reading all three series that fed this particular issue, and I'd stick with all three of them through their ends. And uh, the less said about the end of Hawk and Dove, the better. <laughs> uh, but Starman in particular was a must-buy for me, and to have him dead center was great. Roger Stern had crafted a believable character uh, with a non-standard origin and a, a non-standard supporting cast. He was a little bit Spider-Man, a little bit Superman, and a whole lot of everyman. Uh, his powers were whatever the story called for. He had an attitude that was positive. His supporting cast, particularly his sister Jane, was fun and someone who I probably would have liked to meet in person, and I will admit to it, likely had a crush on in comic form. <laughs> I got to tell you a story about that real quick. Yeah. Uh, the James Robinson Starman series, I was such a fan of it. I wrote this heartfelt letter in there because, you know, the letters page in there was pretty active too. Yeah, I wrote this yeah. heartfelt letter saying, hey, you guys have got to put Janie in your Starman comic. You know, this comic's all about legacy and you think about all the great supporting characters you guys have created. You know, you would hope someday that someone would use those characters as well. Well, Janie's this great character that will paint in the Starman series. You really, really 
really, really needy user. And at that point, I had a pretty good track record of getting printed in DC Comics letters pages. And that one didn't get printed. And I was like, I was so upset and my heart was kind of broken until the big reveal. And then I was like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe that's why my letter didn't get printed. Maybe it's not, but I felt pretty good about that. And and I like how you're keeping that coy, Shag. So to see that big reveal, go back up to the top of this podcast and there you've got that Starman compendium. The answer's in there, folks. Um, To stay on the aside with Starman and James Robinson, particularly, I recall reading somewhere, and I don't remember what trade it was in or website, but at one point, Robinson had pitched picking up or carrying on the Will Payton Starman instead of the Starman series that he had written or somehow dovetailing it in. Oh, wow. Um, Yeah. And, And again... Go to that compendium. You'll see how that all comes together or where Robinson's able to pull that together from. Um, but I, I, again, don't remember where that is, but I'm sure all of you with your search search sites will be able to find something and, and respond <laughs> in kind. Um, but back to Starman. Uh, Starman was co-created by Stern and artist Tom Lyle. Mm-hmm. Uh, rest in peace. Um, I had the pleasure of meeting Lyle at a comic shop in my hometown of Toledo, Ohio, right around the transition to the black and red costume um, and, and got around to talking with Tom. Um, I'm not a big autograph guy. I'm not somebody uh, like Dr. Ange. God love you, Dr. Ange. I do not have the patience for that. I don't have the organization for it, but uh, I did have an issue of Starman that I asked Tom to sign. And I want to say it was four, although looking at covers, it may have been two. And Tom signed right above the Indicia, or right below it, for Doug, while listening to Clapton, Tom Lyle, and Clapton, Eric Clapton, was one of the things that we had talked about during our conversation. Tom was a big Clapton fan, as was I back at that time. That's awesome. Um, and as for why is that why is that fuzzy in my memory? Uh, I purged paper copies a few years ago. I kept El Diablo and Hawk and Dove, but I sold off my copies of Starman. Oh. Uh, so, so naturally, Starman's the one that takes off because Scott Snyder has brought Will Payton back to some semblance of prominence in the DCU uh, in Justice League. I'm not sure where that all went to or came out of because I didn't bother sticking with death metal, but I guess there's something in there. Um, so whoever has that copy out there, you're welcome. And I hope you're a big Starman fan. Or at least a Clapton fan. Right. <laughs> or, or a Tom Lyle fan. Right. <laughs> yeah. I got to meet Scott Hanna uh, at a convention a couple of years ago. And uh, he was you know he was doing lots of sketches for people. And he did a lot of Batman, a lot of Spider-Man, things like that. But I was like, hey, you know what? The first place I really remember your work was on Starman. Would you mind yeah. doing a Will Payton? So I got him to sketch a Will Payton for me. And he was just over the moon. Because he's yeah. like, no one ever asked me to draw this character. And he goes, I miss this character. This is great. you know. And uh, so that's a, that's a special one I've got in my collection. That's got to be a good one. I, can you share it in the... Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and add it to the image gallery. Yeah, so I'll put, <laughs> I'll put it out there. Good suggestion. Continuing with this issue, folks declare their love for Wally or Barry as their Flash. Hal or John or Kyle or Jessica Cruz or maybe even Guy as their Green Lantern. This... This is my Hawk and Dove. Mm. I met I met Hawk via Titan Spotlight a bit before the then couple of Barbara and Carl Kiesel teamed with some kid named Rob Liefeld. That kid didn't five, go anywhere. No, no, didn't do anything either. Uh, they did a five-issue miniseries of Hawk and Dove uh, that brought this Dove, uh, Don Granger, into continuity. And it was popular enough to garner the duo regular series. Um, and they even got a starring role in some crossover titled Armageddon 2001. I don't know. I don't know if you but, call that uh, a starring role. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, no spoilers, but uh, <laughs> didn't end well for him. Let's just no, put it that no, way. No, but but you need that. So you're starring at that point. Um, but anyway, Hawk and Dove were cool by me. And they were so cool, in fact, that I used the story of Dove's predecessor, Dove 
dying in Crisis on Infinite Earths as the basis of a four-page tryout as a comic artist. And I never actually got into comics, but I might still have the pages off to dig them up and see if I can snap some pics and give them to you for the gallery there, Shag. Nice. Uh, but as for El Diablo, artist Mike Parabek won me over from Go on that series. Uh, it was it was light, but edgy. It was dark, but still fun. Um, it was an enjoyable read and, and a comic that actually survived the paper purge of the pre-pandemic. You know, I, I've never read El Diablo. Well, I think I've read one issue of El Diablo, maybe. But either way, like in my memory of El Diablo is simply based on the Parabek art. Now, really, I mean, that's my biggest exposure, like the who's who entries. And I mean, they're just so dynamic. They're so exciting. I love the idea that they brought in the Golden Age Vigilante as an older guy. I just, it, it has a lot of charm that's always made me want to dig in deeper. And I bought several of them. And I was out with Clinton Robinson. We were out shopping one time and I found a bunch in a used bin. And so I bought a bunch of them. I think I'm still missing like, issues i don't know like this is off the top of my head like one and two so it's like it's in that stack of like oh i'll read that once i can find the ones i don't have yeah and, yeah because uh, i mean the parabek oh my gosh anything with parabek he's the man who's so gifted with a pencil oh my so gosh so underrated yeah. criminally underrated you know, I, you talked about Hawk and Dove. Uh, they they were never really my bag. And I, tried, I did talk about them not too long ago with my friend Stella on her show. I was probably a little more harsh than I should have been. But looking here, like they're, they're prominently featured on the cover, right? But inside, they literally get five panels. I mean, that's it in the whole thing, which is funny because they, they made an impression on you know me in the issue, yet they really weren't in there. Now, El Diablo certainly got a lot more screen time. Uh, Will Payton got a lot more screen time, but not them. Absolutely. Yeah. And as for El Diablo, buzz, 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 chatter, chatter, chatter. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I, it's like, okay, so uh, what Doug's describing there, and you'll see some of these on the gallery, which is just uh, El Diablo and Fire talking in Spanish, but it gets, it's even crazier. You know, it's a uh, yakata, yakata, flakata, flakata, yammer, yammer, flap, flap, flap. I mean, it's just bizarre. That is so stinking funny. Those pa- Those panels are riotously funny. They just crack me up. Absolutely. Now, now, speaking of funny stuff, Elrond's hilarious in this thing. There's a lot of really funny bits in this thing. Guy Gardner's reactions with Starman are funny. Now, Guy does have one joke that is super dated in here. He says, time to squeeze the Starman. Like Starman, <laughs> Starman, it's Charmin. Like, oh my gosh, that is so dated and crazy. Yeah, it is. <laughs> There's another dated reference in here, which I actually really like. Uh, Beetle jokes about uh, him being optioned for a movie. You know, uh, like they're going to make a Blue Beetle movie someday, which sounds crazy back then. But nowadays, actually doesn't sound crazy at all, uh, given where we sit with all the superhero movies. And he makes this great joke about Prince and making money off the soundtracks. He says, I figure it's a good business for me to work up my own theme song. This way, if they ever option me off into my own movie, Prince won't be the only one raking in the big bucks. I love that because, like, he doesn't dwell on it. They don't take the time to explain the Batman movie reference. People nowadays might not even get it if they're not thinking about yeah. that. But I just – that joke genuinely cracked me up. Absolutely. And then he, he even throws in a mention of Pee-wee, too. Yes, exactly. Boy, that one didn't age well, did it? Poor Paul Rubens. No. <laughs> so uh, let's see what else. So uh, Gypsy says she wants some time alone, which is totally understandable what's happened to her, except for the fact that she joins the conglomerate next month. So I guess being alone didn't matter that much. You know, when Praxis is there, you just got to be there for him. Then, uh, man, that last page with Orion and Light Ray uh, yes. filling, filling the whole door, they are rocking that white snake hairdos. I mean, that is screening 90s. That is crazy. Yeah, it is. It is. It's hair metal. Right? And that is also the uh, that sh- very short-lived Orion hideous costume that made it into his who's who entry that like nobody remembers or wants to remember. It's pretty rough. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, them in the league is pretty rough. I, you know, I don't remember them doing much, so I, I'm thinking they probably didn't, but we'll find out in the coming months, I suppose. So, uh, Mike McCone. So, the, Mike McCone drew this issue. He drew the last issue, uh, which we covered last month, and I still stand by my suspicion of last month that that's a very old inventory story, because the art in this issue is significantly better than last month. Now, it's a different anchor. I suppose that could be part of it, but his, Mike McCone's art is significantly better in this issue, so I really stand by that thought that, uh, yeah, that last month had to be an inventory, an old, old inventory story before Mike really uh, started to develop some more polish. That makes sense. Yeah. You see glimmers of what McCone will become in here. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And and this is another issue that's not available digitally. In fact, you and I were talking about that off air uh, a mm-hmm. while ago, Doug, when we're getting ready for it, is that you can't read it on Comixology, you can't read it on DC Universe app. It's a great issue, and yet it's not easily available. And this is the third Mike McCone issue that's not available digitally. So I, you know, I've been thinking about this. I, you know, originally I thought maybe it was like some arrangement with Mike McCone that wouldn't work. But then I thought, well, you know, there's other Mike McCone issues which are available. And then I just had a thought leading up to this one: what if the availability is related to the original artwork and their ability to scan it? Meaning, yeah. like, what if McCone's original artwork can't be located and they can't get a good enough scan off the actual issues itself? It's just a thought. You're, um, you're not wrong there because the issue is, I mean, it's newsprint, right? Yep. So yep. you're not ever going to get a clean scan on that no matter what. And on top of that, it's thin. So you've got the bleed on the other side. So you're you're probably not wrong. It's definitely not something where, well, McCone drew it digitally. So there isn't the original art because we're talking 1990. And right. in order to draw something digitally, your computer at that point, my friends, and this is somebody who had a computer in 1990, would have had four megabytes of storage space, not gig, mega. So if I, my Commodore 64 in 1990 probably was a 64K, I guess is what that probably is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, well, I, I was playing Summer Olympics anyway. So, um, <laughs> And what made me think about some of this was uh, reading some of the scans of the Justice League Europe issues that were available on Comixology. They're not there anymore, but they were originally. Every once in a while, you get a page which is really blurry. And I'm like, that's weird. And then I realized, oh, I bet this had to be pulled from the original comic uh, rather than the original artwork. And so that's what got me thinking about it. So it's all speculation at this point, but that's that's what I'm thinking, which is a shame because I really wish this issue was available digitally for everyone. Absolutely. Now, here's where I sit down and I put on my Fred Rogers sweater and I tell you guys why this issue of Justice League America number 42 is very important to me. It is because this issue was the very first issue of Justice League America I bought as an ongoing collector. Now, I collected the JLA during the Justice League Detroit era, which, by the way, uh, that took place in Doug's backyard. Uh, <laughs> literally his backyard, not just yes, the city, yeah. but literally, yeah. yeah. Uh, that's where the bunker was. But uh, So anyway, when the JLI phenomena kicked off in 87, I missed it. Uh, I never picked up that series regularly. I picked up the occasional issue for like crossovers, like Millennium and the Teasdale Imperative and things like that. But that was it. However, I did get in on the ground floor for Justice League Europe because I had heard that was going to be like a more gritty, more, you know, super heroic version of the Justice League. So I was there all the way for Justice League Europe. So I was buying JLE, but not JLA. In hindsight, I know it's kind of crazy. Not a lot of people went that route, but I did. So here's where history comes into play. Starman number 26, the Will Payton series, came out two weeks after this issue of Justice League America. Starman number 26 featured the Golden Age Starman costume on the cover. Now, as a diehard fan of the JSA, I mean, I was deep, deep, deep into my fandom of JSA by this point. I bought that issue of Starman immediately. So there I was thinking Ted Knight was right there on the cover. Starman was back, and I was desperate for anything connected to the, to the classic JSA. Now it turns out it was really Starman's son, Dave. 
David, who later on would become a very major character in James Robinson's Starman series, but David premiered in this issue of Starman. Now, I was familiar with the Will Payton concept from the Invasion crossover issue, because Firestorm was in it, so I picked that up, but it didn't really grab me. Well, issue 26 of Starman did. It just worked for me. You had the classic JSA-era Starman costume, Roger Stern's amazing writing, Dave Hoover on the art, and gone was that ugly, sorry folks, ugly golden purple costume. I always called it the peanut butter and jelly costume on Will Payton. It was replaced with this slick looking black and red costume. I was hooked. So at the time, uh, I was reading a lot, lot, lot of mature readers books. That's really where I spent most of my time. I was reading books like Sandman and Doom Patrol and Animal Man and Shade the Changing Man. You know, these deeper proto-vertigo stuff, really. Uh, And I was reading some of the darker superhero comics, too, like Batman or uh, J.M. DiMatteis' Dr. Fate, which is really a thinking man's comic, or the gritty five-year-later Legion of Superhero stuff. I was only reading just a handful of regular superhero comics, like Just Like Europe, but not really many at all. I was in my dark, dark, darkity dark phase, you know, that you go through when you're a teenager. I thought comics should be, you know, thought-provoking and edgy, you know, because <laughs> when you're a teenager, you know, you're so much more mature than everyone else. Absolutely. But I read that Starman issue, number 26, and it was a breath of fresh air. It just, after so many dark and dreary comics, this was fun. It was adventurous. The art was great. There was a sense of legacy was in it. I fell in love with this title. So I immediately started by all the back issues of Starman, and I grabbed every comic that Starman was in that I could find, including Justice League America number 42, which was still on the shelves. And as I read Justice League America 42, I laughed hysterically reading this comic, because it is a genuinely hilarious issue. And I realized what I'd been missing, and I immediately started buying the back issues, and I started collecting JLA full-time. In fact, I kept collecting JLA from that point in 1990 all the way into like a few years into the New 52. That's like 25 years as a JLA collector straight, all thanks to an appearance by Will Payton, or really uh, what led me there was the appearance by David Knight. So, and also, by the way, two months after this, uh, Starman led me to the Superman family of books through the Crisis on Crimson Kryptonite. So I, I was there for the proposal, and I stuck with Superman for years and years, too. So in the end, I've got David Knight's appearance in Starman, the Will Payton Starman comic book, to thank for igniting my love of the broader JLI Bwahaha era. So I will always appreciate Will Payton's book for that. That's crazy, and he didn't even join. <laughs> I know, I know, but he looks great on the cover, doesn't he? I mean, that's one yes, thing we didn't describe is he's he looks so angry, and he's literally throwing the invitation back at you. Assumes Maxwell Lord, no way. So it's, it just makes for a great cover, and uh, I love yeah. this issue. I don't know what you what did you think of the issue overall, man? Oh, I absolutely love this issue, and it survived my paper purge. So it, it was hiding right back back behind the El Diablo series. So uh, it definitely is an issue that I love, and was very disappointed that I could find digitally to have yet again in another format yeah yeah i know and you know it's reprinted in the omnibus so i would assume they've cleaned it up so i don't know why they can't make that version available digitally i don't i don't know what the deal is but either way uh it's a great issue folks if you hadn't read it i mean yeah it's it, it is a little sad that adam hughes who was the regular artist didn't do it but again the mccone art looks great it really does it really does all the all the guest stars are super fun i i cannot recommend this issue highly enough so all right, Doug. Well, now's where we got to do the tough part. Folks, this is where we are going to pick the... Wahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment of the issue. Both myself and Doug are going to pick one moment, and only one is going to be awarded the coveted Wahaha Award. Doug, you're the guest, which is pretty much unfortunate for everyone listening. Uh, why don't you go first and tell us your nomination for the Wahaha Award? 
the Bwahaha Award, as far as I'm concerned, should go to, it's actually one moment, but it's over two pages and they're six pages apart. It's the conversation between El Diablo and Fire that gets into what we had mentioned earlier, Shag, with the yada, 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 blada, 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 buzz, 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 chatter, chatter, chatter. It's beautiful, fun character acting by McCone, by the writers, where you can see the connection between B and, and uh, Rafe, and you can see Ted just losing his mind out of boredom. Folks, it doesn't happen too often. It happens once in a while, not too often, but every once in a magical moment, the guest and I are perfectly in sync, and we have both selected the exact same nomination for the Bwahaha Award. So there's no debate. There's no argument. Congratulations to Ted Cord, to uh, Fire, to El Diablo. You guys have won the Bwahaha Award. Please wear it with pride. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you, and uh, congratulations, because it is a damn funny moment in this issue. It is. It really is oh, so good oh, Doug this issue makes me so happy I'm so glad you were here for this I it just it, it brings me joy is at the bottom of the line at the end of the day it just makes me happy yeah and that's what these comics are supposed to do Shag that's why we put money into them that's why we put time into them it's all it's like you guys always say find your joy it's why I put almost six years of podcasting into this to, to get to this <laughs> issue folks it was all leading to this it's all downhill just so from I here. could come back again <laughs> exactly right well Doug I need to ask you a favor uh, right. would, you, would you mind hanging out here for a few minutes uh, and running interference in case Barta shows up, because I'm pretty sure that MangaCon and Funky Flashman would not survive that experience if Barta got here and you weren't there to run interference. Would you mind staying? Absolutely. I, I, I'm a big fan of Barta or a big Barta fan or a big fan of big Barta. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll stick around. I sincerely appreciate that. Now, don't worry, Doug. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And after this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy for the 18th issue of Justice League Europe. Hey, Mike, have you heard about my new podcast? Oh, what's that? Oh, it's where you talk to people on your computer and then put it out on the internet. (sighs) Yes, I know what a podcast is, Paul, but but what's the show you're doing? Yeah, I'm going to talk to people on my computer and then put it out on the internet. And uh, what's this called? Uh, Since it's a chat show and I really want to talk to interesting people about interesting things, I thought I'd call it something that was, you know, self-explanatory, like Dial F for Flanger. Right. Dial F for Flanger. Cool. Uh, I look forward to my guest spot. When are you going to have me on? Uh, um, yeah, uh, uh, I'll get back. Wow. Well, if you'd like to hear Paul chatting away on this Dial F for Flanger show, you can find it on the Waiting for Doom Network. You said I was a liar. I'm not. People think you are good, but you are bad and hard-hearted. I'll let everyone know what you have done. I am a free human being with an independent will which I now exert to leave you. To marry you would kill me. I'm a badass woman. What's wrong with that? Can't hold me back. Yeah, I'm a badass woman. Just me. Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast. Join me, Stella, as I look at the legacy of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte through the lens of its varied and various interpretations. TV, film, radio, theater, sci-fi, erotica? Pun intended. Does Jane Eyre transcend culture, time, place, and galaxy? Listen and find out. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. You can't ignore, you can't ignore no more. I'm a bad woman.
And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe number 18. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. This gentleman is quite the renaissance man. He's a teacher, an actor, a musician, the staff composer over at the House of Frankenstein, and an all-around nice guy. Now I had the opportunity to meet him a few years ago and we spent a large chunk of the night just sitting in a hotel lobby talking away about loads of different comic books and storylines and characters. And you know, you know sometimes when you just click with someone and just your thoughts, everything are just perfectly in sync? Well, I'm here to tell you folks that this guest and I, after a long night of talking, we are anything but in sync on our feelings about comic books. We spent the entire night disagreeing with each other's every single opinion on beloved comic books. If I say comic book tomato, he says comic book tomato. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. Terry O'Malley. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, Terry. Thanks for being here, man. How you doing? Oh, good evening, Monsieur. Shag. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great to be here in the Paris Embassy. It's absolutely beautiful. Now, I, I want to take issue here with you and I disagreeing with everything. As far as I'm concerned, that puts me in the majority. I've heard you talk comics with Rob Kelly <laughs> and with other folks on this network, Guy in Vermont, that other guy in Vermont, <laughs> with Max, with everybody. And no one agrees with you, Shag. Okay, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. They may not agree with a lot of what I say, but they still love the same comics. Like, everything you and I talked about that night, I just remember. I'd, I'd fire off a comic I love. You'd be like, ah, that's post-crisis. I hated it. Or, you know, the crisis shouldn't have happened. Or I mean, it was just everything I shot, you hated. I'm absolutely right. <laughs> and everything you threw at me was like pre-crisis Bronze Age stuff that just gets under my skin. I may have an appreciation for it, but I just don't love it. And it's like, okay. And it was just... It was t- I, I was sure we'd find some common ground, but nope, not at all. <laughs> I think you've reached that age now, the age, <laughs> the gap between just a few years and comic readers. And you say, what's wrong with these kids? What are they reading this useless stuff for? Well, yeah. <laughs> Why did they read this good stuff that I liked when I was 12? Don't worry. My, my post-crisis generation of people got their dose of their own medicine when New 52 came along. So Yeah, you did. <laughs> we learned what it was like to have our universe retconned away. Now you know. Yep. So come on over here, but don't step on the lawn. <laughs> Who touched a the thermostat? These damn kids. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask you, Terry. So JLI, this is one of the topics we talked about that night in the lobby. And I, I, I have a memory of what you said, but I'm not entirely sure. But I had been drinking a bit that night. So let me ask you, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? Did you fall in love with it? Did you not like it? What, what was your, you know, or is this your first experience with the team? Tell, tell the people at home your secret origin. No, I got JLI. L-I, number one, off the stands. But that was at the very end of my regular comic book collecting buying days. Um, and I got JLI, number one, because I was still haunting the shops. In fact, I just uh, used this reason to go trolling through Mike's Amazing World of Comics and look mm. at the, what, was, what was on sale then. And I was didn't buy that, didn't buy that, didn't buy stopped buying that, stopped buying that, stopped buying that. But I would pick up an occasional thing. I was, by this time... Uh, 
between the late 80s, early 90s, um, my collecting was down to Cerebus, Love and Rockets, and Hate. And that was all. So I Oh, wow. Okay. Given up all my beloved superheroes. I just didn't enjoy them anymore. So I got JLI number one. And, but, you know, there, there was nothing that was going to keep me buying a bunch of stuff anymore. So I just got out of the habit. But, I mean, I've been buying JLA much earlier mm -hmm. because that's one of the things that got me into comics. I had seen Super Friends on right. the television. The, the first iteration of Super Friends. So this is 1973, 1974. I'm nine or 10 years old. And I liked reading comics. I, read, I would read the, not, the newspaper comic strips every single day. It's how I learned to read, really. Oh, wow. Okay. And I would see comics at friends' houses. And, and uh, in the summertime, we could get, we'd buy comics when we go on vacation. But um, not many superheroes, mostly, you know, Richie Rich and Archie and those, those things, the Harveys. But come I really on, liked... come on, say sad sack. Tell me, say sad sack. Mm, I never bought a sad sack. I, oh. <laughs> One of my favorite comics. You're breaking my heart. See, once again, folks, Sorry, Terry and man. I, nothing in common. Nothing in common. <laughs> <laughs> Not even Beetle Bailey. But um, but I, I just liked the superheroes. And so I really liked, and I would, you know, watch the Batman reruns, Adventures of Superman reruns, every chance I got. And... Uh, so my parents got me for Christmas. I think this must have been Christmas of 74. Jules Pfeiffer's book, The Great Comic Book Superheroes. Hmm. Oh, God, what a great book that is. I didn't read the essays for years. I didn't read what Jules Pfeiffer wrote. I just read the origin stories of Superman, Batman, Captain Marvel, the Submariner, Human Torch, Captain America. Oh, Hawkman, Flash, Green Lantern, all from the first, the earliest stories, the 40s. And just loved them. Read them over and over and over again. And in um, the spring of 75, my sister bought a Justice League comic. She got that and an issue of Ghosts. Now, I remember this because I remember all the comics I read back then. But mm -hmm. I can't remember the comics I bought, you know, last month. If I Right, month. right. Well, I do remember the ones I bought last month. I bought one. But the ones I bought in the 90s, I don't know when I got them. I wasn't buying them regularly. But the ones, yeah, the first ones you buy, right? You read them all of, all the time because that's all you have. You got four comics. You just read the same four comics over and over. Exactly. Again. But I remember she got this issue of Justice League, issue 120 or 121 with Adam Strange. Mm. So this is my first introduction to the Earth-1 Green Lantern, Earth-1 Flash, Green Arrow, Elongated Man, Black Canary. And I, first I was puzzled. This is, this is not the same Flash. This is not the same Green Lantern. Why do they have different costumes? Why do they have different names? And was it long after that? Hmm, I'm trying to get, I, I should have checked when the book was published, but Denny O'Neill's edited book of the, the superhero origin stories DC published. I saw that in a bookstore, read that in the bookstore, didn't own it for years. And that cleared things up for me. Mm -hmm. But the next year, 1976 is when I started collecting comics. And I saw Justice League of America number 135. Okay. Crisis on Earth S. Ah. My first JLA comic had the JLA, the JSA, and the Shazam squad, never to be seen again. And that was it, brother. That, I, it was at, at the beach. It was at mm -hmm. Hampton Beach. Saw it on us. Remember, they had comics back in the wild. Right. <laughs> saw it on a rack. And it's, I was so excited to see a real live Justice League comic out in the wild for 25 cents. I'm going to buy it for 30 cents. It was worth it. They didn't understand much of it because it was really, really action-packed story. But I really liked it. There, there are panels in it that are still sticking in my head. So next um, six or seven years, I was buying Justice League regularly, along with a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Didn't do the JLA Detroit. By then, my taste had started to change. I was in college. So the buying patterns were shifting. Mm -hmm. 
And I wasn't enjoying Justice League after number 200 very much. Bought the crossovers. Had to get my Justice Society because I'm still a big Justice Society fan. Heck yeah. But then, um, oh, I remember because it was 84. I was doing a summer internship at a theater up in Maine. And I got that uh, story that Jerry Conway wrote with the big, um, that brought the Martian Manhunter back. Mm -hmm. Big Mars story. Oh, yeah. But even then, that gave me a little sour taste because I knew the original plot for Jem, son of Saturn, was to be Jem, son of Mars. But this story messed that up. And I liked Jem, son of Saturn. And I think it would have been better if it had been son of Mars because it made that Martian culture that much richer. But they changed all that. Once again, another comic book that I didn't quite enjoy that Terry did. <laughs> but, yeah, but, but I haven't read it in, in 40 years, so I don't know. <laughs> I didn't like but it 40 again. years ago, so. Oh. <laughs> I've tried. I bought it off the shelves too. <laughs> but again, something that had memorable scenes. There was snow in it. That was one of the things. That great Gene Colan art. Well, yeah. I'll talk to Ryan about it if he wants to talk about that book on his Gene Colan job. Diablo Frank loves uh, Gem as well, so there's another ah, outlet for you. Wait a minute. Diablo Frank likes something? <laughs> Only because no one else does. <laughs> okay. His contrarian status is safe. Exactly. <laughs> but so that's as my buying habits change, then I just, you know, was. Following my joy. If I didn't enjoy it anymore, I just stopped buying it. And, you know, and I realized, looking back, there are a lot of comics I was buying just out of habit for a long, long time. I think mm-hmm. we all do that. Yep, we do. Okay. Oh, I thought it was going to be better. Maybe the next issue will be better. Oh, maybe the next issue will be better. <laughs> well, it's it, there's always a cycle, too. It's like, you know, you're going to go through a bad spell. I mean, I'm an Aquaman fan and a Firestorm fan, folks. Mm-hmm. I know that <laughs> there's going to be a bad spell in here somewhere. It yeah. don't get better. So you just stick with it. And it's your, it's a bad collector's habit. It's part of our mentality, and it's part of what the comic company has been counting on. That's it, exactly. It's collector mentality. Um, so that that didn't stay with me too much. I was able to to break free. But after the great editorial shakeup in the mid-'80s, and they got rid of all the cool stuff about DC, you know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> Superboy, two different Hawkmans. But I was excited about the new Justice League. Interna- uh, just what the international they called it first, right? Well, it was just Justice League for Justice seven Justice League. Issues, That's six just issues. Justice League. Yeah. Then it became Justice League International. Yeah. But it was it was there was no secret that they were going to change the name. I mean, they were already advertising it in a lot of ways. So right. I mean, everyone knew the name change was coming. Yeah. But and I got that the first few issues. But by that point, I was living with a friend who worked in a comic book store, so he was bringing comics home. And I didn't have to buy them as much ah, anymore. There you go. And so that's when I started losing the habit of going to the store regularly. And if you're, you know, I'm getting the milk for free. No need to buy the cow. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> I'm getting all these cows. And I don't like these cows very much. But I did like, I did like Justice League. It's just that that's when my, my, my buying stopped. Except for the occasional thing going in to see um, what might be a good new miniseries or a one-shot. So I... I got Justice League Europe number one, and but I wasn't buying anything else, so I never went back until I started listening to this peculiar thing called a podcast all about <laughs> the Justice League. Wahaha! <laughs> and I did. I pick up a bunch of stuff in the fifty cent bin, so I got a. 10 or 12 issues. I do know that you had some passion for it at some point because you sent me scans of a bunch of JLI funnies that you had drawn back in the day. Yeah, I did. When they were announcing the stuff, 
And so I was getting excited. So what, what will this book be? Why, who are these new Justice League members going to be? What's my take on it? So you did it before. Because, okay, because there was already some this humor. This is before they were published. Okay, but there was some humor in your sketches. So I thought that, oh, okay, yeah. I misunderstood. So you were ahead of the game. You could kind of, you felt the it felt it in the ether that there was going to be some humor here, I guess. No, that's just the way I like drawing. I did the patience to, to draw a series of superhero stuff. I like making fun of that. I, I did a bunch of little sketches like I'll send you some other stuff I dug up. Well, you sent me a bunch of them. It, it, we actually shared some of them in a previous episode in the Image Gallery, but I'll have to dig them out again and oh, cool. put some, put some on the Image Gallery for this episode so you guys can see it. These are these are awesome. I loved them. I probably did them at playing D and D some night, nineteen eighty five. The Devil's Game. <laughs> Back then, all the parents were convinced that. <laughs> That's when I was sketching stuff. That's why I had a pencil in my hand all the time. See, another example how different Terry and I were. 85, he's playing D&D. I was playing Marvel Superhero. See, we're, we're like oil and water. <laughs> just doesn't work. <laughs> well, why don't we get into this issue? So this yeah. is Justice League Europe, number 18, from DC Comics. Cover date is September 1990. It was on the shelves August 7th, 1990. Cover price was $1 for shiny quarters. Cover is by Bart Sears and Jose Marzan Jr. Terry, would you do the honors of describing the cover? Oh, if you insist, man. This, uh, <laughs> frankly, friends, this cover is a mess. Oh! Uh, it, I'll, I'll explain why it's a mess. The cover, uh, in brief, is our heroes, six heroes clutched in a giant fist with a sort of fuchsia... What would you call that color of the background? Oh, it's, fuchsia's the word for it. It's, it's yeah. a super bright... It's bright I, fuchsia. I, I call it DC 80s pink, is what I usually oh. call it, because it's like, this was this was the pink they used it in is. a lot of their books. And on the cover, it's strong, because the paper's it's not... not the, it's overwhelmingly strong. Yeah. And I was realizing... I uh, saw so it, okay, at first glance, heroes in a big fist. Yep. Uh, all struggling to get out. Take a closer look at it. Why the hell can't elongated man get out? Why can't Metamorpho get out? Why can't Flash get out? Come on. All right, okay, it's, it's, they're in a fist. And then it's not till much, much later I realized this is a hand with three fingers and one thumb and a glove, a white glove and a black arm. It's a cartoon hand, a cartoon character hand with the classic rolled cuff glove, a la Mickey Mouse, a la Bugs Bunny, a la Mutt and Jeff. They all have the classic glove Probably in probably three seams on the back. We can't see the back of it. I, uh, it's probably true. I never picked up on the fact that it was a cartoon hand until prepping for this episode. I don't know why. I just never noticed. And this is part of my thesis why this cover is a mess. It's not strong enough to suggest that it's a cartoon hand. And the coloring helps not one whit. Because of the angle of the hand, the, the arm is coming out of the bottom of the of the cover from the from the lower edge, but the hand takes up most of the space. So there's not much arm, and it's black with a shine mark on it. It's not a white shine mark. It's sort of a grayish purple shine mark wrapped around the wrist of this cartoon hand. In and out of all the fingers of the hand and around this other heroes is the elongated man in his lavender color costume with a white stripe. So on this cartoon white glove hand is a long white striped character with a purple costume, which is clashing with the background and that white shine mark on the sleeve. So nothing is standing out. And now looking at it again, looking at the thickness of the line on the cartoon hand, it's not really thick enough to suggest it's a cartoon hand. And so everything gets lost in a big muddle. The only thing that really stands out is, is frankly, is metamorpho because he's front and center. And Captain Adam has a big glowing fist. 
I don't mind as much that you can't tell it's a cartoon hand because it actually leaves a little bit of the mystery for the episode for the issue itself to unfold. But I will agree the coloring isn't doing it in its favors. And and I'm looking at this thing in two different ways. I'm looking at the physical copy, yep. which it looks a, a little more purple than pink on the physical one. But and then I'm looking at the digital one that uh, I got off Comicsology before they pulled these issues. And it's a on the digital version, it is much more garish. It's hard wow. to look at on the digital version. It is so garish. Yeah, and, I'm looking at the computer screen, so it's yeah, it's it's garish. That's a good yeah. word for it there's other issues too now i I do want to address one thing though so as far as what it looks like and i don't necessarily blame bart sears for the composition um again i don't have as much of a problem with the composition as you do because i like i'm it's supposed to be representative of what happens so obviously you're right yeah uh metamorpho could easily kick it out ralph could easily get out flash could get out whatever but it's you know it's for the spirit of it i'm fine but really what bart sears is doing here is this is an homage to justice league international number 11 i don't know if you can see it i dropped it in our google doc notes so you can see I did that see one. it. You're going to share that with the, on the. Uh, on no, the I'm going to make. They can look that up themselves. Look it up yourselves. I can't do we everything. Shag, do everything for you. Come on. Exactly. You're adults, people. And you're, while you're looking up Justice League 11, look up uh, what four issues later with the big hand grabbing Nort. Oh, right, right. The Galactus, uh, the Galactus hand. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a much earlier Justice League of America issue 134. The JLA and another big hand in outer space. Was that a Despero issue? I can't remember. Who was the I bad guy? I think it was, yeah. yeah. Well, the the Nort one, believe it or not, we act, we've actually talked about that one already on the show. Turns out that that is an homage to an old Fantastic Four cover. Oh. So, yeah, which is pretty pretty cool. Yeah, I was trying to think of other um, big hand on the cover comics, and I, I'm disappointed in myself. They didn't readily come to mind, because it's happened quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. So uh, there's, another, there's another thing, too, on the coloring I want to mention real quick. So this is the second cover in a row. Uh, last month was the same issue with Ghost League... Uh, Europe, where they miscolored the sleeves on Power Girl. They're, mm. supposed, they're supposed to be white, but here they're just flesh-toned. And I said it last month, and I'll say it again. I actually really like it with the short-sleeve look. It looks pretty badass. I mean, it's like sun's out, gun's out. You know, Power Girl's like, she is here to kick some ass, and I kind of like it. Well, if they were white, that'd be even worse, because it's then her left arm is on top of the white glove. Yeah. So it would just be be lost. Completely. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I'm looking at the the cover you said this is an homage of. Mm-hmm. The Justice League International number 11 is a much better composition. The hand is coming more from the side. It's a cleaner composition. And this is one of my issues with uh, the artwork in general of the time and of this issue we're looking at, number 18 in particular. There's a lot of fussiness and extraneous line work. Oh, sure. But in the, in uh, was is this Maguire's cover number 11? Number 11's, yeah, Maguire. Yeah. So it's, it's it's more minimal there than it it's is certainly so by much from, and his And his line work is much finer. Mm-hmm. And so it really stands out that that is a fist. And it's a white background, so all the colorful heroes pop right out which is horrific well i gotta say i mean it's it's bart sears in 1990 who sort of he wasn't one of the pioneers but he's definitely on the front edge of the extreme artists of the 90s and so all the lines on captain adam all the lines on metamorpho which unfortunately appealed to me because I, you know, I'm a product of that time. I, I read a lot of there comics you go. that time. Yeah. So I, I love it, but I also recognize, yeah, when you compare it to like a Maguire, Maguire's just so much more, I guess, elegance, the word by comparison. That's a good it's, word. Yeah. So. Well, it's, it's a lot of, in every artist will bear this out, what to leave out. Mm-hmm. 
I do got to say, at least they gave they, they remember to put Crimson Fox on the cover this time. They seem to forget that <laughs> a lot. So they left off Rock they left off Rocket Red, but we got Crimson Fox for once. And that could have been an afterthought looking at her placement. Oh gosh, I hope that's not the case because last month it seemed like everything she was in was an afterthought. So mm. oh goodness. All right. Well, before we get inside, any, <laughs> anything more on the cover that we want to just destroy and tear apart? <laughs> no, no. I'll save that for the rest of the the interior. All right. Well, again, coloring aside, I still like the cover. I think it's fun, but Terry hates everything that's good in the world. Yeah. So there you go. <laughs> Inside is Plot and Breakdowns by Keith Giffen, script by Gerard Jones, penciler is Bart Sears, inker is Randy Elliott, letter is Bob LePan, colorist is Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. The issue itself is called The Happy Place. So, Terry, would you like to start us off with a recap? Well, I certainly would, Shag. Are you all right, kitty? Settle in. Here comes the recap. <laughs> Finding themselves in a world similar to Earth, yet devastated by all-out war, our heroes quickly determine a course of action. Captain Adams sends Flash to reconnoiter on the ground in clockwise pattern around their landing point, increasing his range five miles further out every revolution. He sends Power Girl in an opposite pattern in the sky, increasing her altitude by five miles every lap. Rocket Red is also sent aloft in a much lower altitude to cover those on the ground. Metamorpho analyzes the air to determine if it is radioactive or safe, while Elongated Man and Crimson Fox carefully decipher any clues that may be near. Uh, No. That doesn't happen. (laughs) Our story opens. Seven colorful, unidentified figures find themselves trapped on a world they never made. They are amidst collapsed and broken buildings and rising steam. Now, the way I'm going to read this, everybody, uh, say this. There's no identification. There's no roll call. There's no line of heads on the front cover or on the splash page. If this is your first issue, and this is the first one I'd read in a very long time, this is how it's going to sound to you. This is what it would be like. If you never read Justice League, if you didn't read DC Comics in the 70s and 80s, this is what it's like. A large albino bald man and a shiny muscular man determine that they are on, quote, their world, unquote. They being the extremist creeps mentioned on the splash page. A blonde woman expresses pessimism about their chances to return. And a large robot-like character notices something in the sky. A man with a stretchy neck identifies it as a nuclear missile. But it only explodes into a bright advertisement for a place called Wacky World. Shiny man, clearly the leader, follows the sign to Wacky World. He can fly, as can Robot. And Robot is carrying some sort of platform which holds all the others, except for Big Bald Albino. But clever readers may see that the platform has a face. Albino is a shapeshifter. (laughs) On the way, they leave the devastated city and pass over verdant fields and trees. Shiny Man, demonstrating the leadership abilities of George Armstrong Custer, sets his team down right in the middle of a pristine village of contrasting architectural styles. Stretchy Neck Man stretches his neck. They all stand around and wonder about it. Woman in Brown, who has no discernible ears, hears music. Does she have super hearing? Addresses Shiny Man as Captain and brings the sound to his notice. He calls her Fox. Our heroes then stand and watch a parade of at least one marching band and three majorettes. Cheerfully march past them until a float, which does seem to be floating, arrives. Upon the float are a fat man wearing a crown, and at his feet, appearing helpless, is a woman whom the blonde heroine calls the Silver Sorceress. The king identifies himself as Carney and invites our heroes to share in his day. 
Captain Shiny Man, showing the tactical acumen of Napoleon in Russia, <laughs> refuses and demands that Carney release his prisoner. Carney then releases gas from his float, which fells all of our heroes, including the robot. Our heroes wake up, strapped into a ride like a funhouse ride. They are seated with their hands apparently locked into place and are attended to by ever-smiling, perfectly-mannered, and delightful park attendants. Robot now has a bearded human face. They take a forced ride through the funhouse and see a brief recap of the war that wrecked most of this world. Stretchy Neck Man stretches his neck. <laughs> At the end of the ride, they disembark. Albino Shapeshifter angrily grabs a nearby janitor around the neck. The Shapeshifter is called Rex by Captain Shiny. Rex must be very strong as well as changeable because he squeezes the janitor's neck so hard his head comes off as the janitor was a lifelike robot. Our heroes seem rather nonplussed by this revelation and figure that all the other people they've seen must also be robots. Although they do not test their hypothesis with the other two persons in the room or try to determine how these robots operate, or look for an energy source. They merely walk out of the building. Stretchy Neck Man can also stretch his legs, but not when he's stretching his neck. <laughs> they exit the building and are met by more people, some dressed as mascot characters, advancing toward them. Our heroes, under the leadership of Captain Shiny, who must have studied the strategy of General George McClellan, just stand there. <laughs> Okay, Shag, maybe something else happens in part two. Can you continue? I'm going to try. Uh, folks, that just killed me. That was hilarious. So I, I did my best to follow that up in, his, uh, in Terry's style. I did not do it justice, but I'm going to try. So at this point, Captain Shiny tells the theme park robots to take us to your leader. The seven colorful heroes are led to another ride, this time revealing the creation of the Wacky World Amusement Park and its robot inhabitants. The park's creator, which they call the Great Visionary, is worshipped by the robot inhabitants. He created the park amid the wasteland of a nuclear holocaust in an effort to bring imagination, fun, and cleanliness to the people of this devastated world. But isn't it just too bad that all the people are dead? Then the fat man named Carney returns, threatening the heroes. When Captain Shiny speaks out against the theme park, the park robots attack the heroes. While some of the heroes fight the robots, others apparently do nothing but stand around, like Stretchy Neck Man, <laughs> Woman in Brown, and Robot, who has a robot head again. <laughs> Deep underground, Carney is keeping captive the helpless woman named Silver Sorceress. We know it's her because the sexually submissive pose and gratuitous drawing of her butt. The helpless woman <laughs> uses her powers to contact the League member with the weakest mind, specifically Runs Fast Man. Runs Fast Man directs Captain Shiny to blast a hole in the ground, which leads to an access way, allowing the heroes to escape. Carney is enraged by the heroes' escape and realizes they're heading straight for him. Carney sets into motion a plan that will destroy the entire theme park. As the heroes confront Carney, he pushes a button marked Destruct, which apparently causes him to do just that. Destruct, because Carney is a robot too, and he explodes. Thankfully, Big Bald Albino shapeshifts into a giant dome to protect his teammates from the explosion. Well, everyone except Helpless Woman. <laughs> we see her outside of the Big Albino Dome, and we know it's her because the gratuitous drawing of her crotch. So, we don't know if she or her crotch survived, but we really don't know if the heroes under the dome survived either. The issue ends without telling us. Elsewhere, after the devastation caused by Carney, a mysterious chamber opens. Pink smoke pours from the chamber, and a hand emerges. Now, we're not sure if that hand is also connected to a body, because they don't show us that. A voice from the chamber wonders, What happened to my world? Next issue, the conclusion to end all conclusions. Extreme measures. All right, so we were not kindly during that recap. <laughs> 
baby, but we're accurate. That's fair. That is fair. Now, in someone else's defense, though, it does say right on the first page, part four. So you're taking a risk jumping in on part four. Yeah. Now, I started with Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven. No, wait. That's, <laughs> actually, that's not true. I'm sorry. I started with Crisis on Infinite Earths number eight. I started at number eight, and I was able to figure out who everybody was. So that's a yeah. fair complaint that they could have done a better job saying who everyone was in this thing. This is my biggest. I know everybody, all comic, let me qualify this statement. The majority of superhero comic book readers get all bent out of shape when there's all that not even plot recap or exposition going on. The exposition news network. All right. When, you know, heroes calling each other by their code names and giving things away. But it's so important. That's why the, the great editors of the olden days, like Stan Lee, like Julia Schwartz, they knew that someone's going to pick this book up and not just a fan, maybe a casual reader. Because that's what the cover is for, to get a new, some to pick it up. This, I went through the whole book. These heroes are not identified. They are not called by their names. We don't know who they are, what they do. And frankly, I don't think the writers of this book know what they do. Um, this is one of the reasons I was disappointed uh, when I was reading Justice League International more recently. And it, it, back in the old days as well, things like I, w- I bought Blue Beetle's book. I bought Booster Gold's book. These were not the same characters in, in Justice League. I mean, there, it was a funny take in Justice League, but it was, they were different characters entirely. Now, in this issue, Captain Adam is never called Captain Adam. Captain Adam, in his own book, I bought, I bought his book for, for a year. He had all these magnificent powers. He could tap something they called the quantum force, he could, which, you know, a great nebulous term, which means he could pretty much do whatever we need him to do to get out of the trap in any issue. <laughs> great power to have. Right. Metamorpho is the element man. Metamorpho in this story is never called metamorpho. Metamorpho doesn't do anything but change his shape. He doesn't turn into a gas or anything like that. Elongated man is never called elongated man. He does. That's why I called him stretchy neck man. That's all he does. The artist is really uninspired. Doesn't show what Ralph can do. Doesn't show what Ralph, who Ralph is. Power Girl. I don't think DC Comics knew who Power Girl was. I don't think they knew who Power Girl was for about 20 years. I know there's because some Power Girl experts out there, Mr. or Ms. Simple Pending out there, who is the expert. When I read All-Star Comics that introduced the Super Squad, I knew who Power Girl was. And then right. the crisis came and they said, oh, we can't do that anymore. So who is this person? Uh, I don't know. Uh, who, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she's Atlantean. What does that mean? I don't know. Well, so, get, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, I, I keep interrupting. You go ahead. I'll, I'll, go ahead. I, I'm ranting. I'm ranting here, Shag. There's, <laughs> there's foam at my mouth. <laughs> so they didn't know what to do with her. Now, any, any iteration of Power Girl could do something. But in this story... All she does for the first half of the book is thrust out her hip and her chin is stuck on her collar, her right collar. Look at every look at every picture. It's always the same. Her chin is stuck on the collar. The freaking flash. The flash might be identifiable. That red suit is iconic at this point, even though it's not the same person who's been wearing it since 1955. But everybody knows who that suit is. He's never called the flash. He's called Wally on page 11. He doesn't even run until page 18. Mm-hmm. 18! He's a freaking Flash! <laughs> Come on! Crimson Fox, nobody knows who she is. Nobody still knows who she is. They had no idea what they were doing with that character. They could have made up anything at all. And they chose not to. In Rocket Red, same thing. He's a guy in a suit of armor that can do anything the story needs it to do at that time. Except in this one, where apparently he can get gassed, even though he's wearing some sort of breathing apparatus. And he's never called Rocket Red. So we don't know who this, these, any of these people are. And they don't do anything. There's no superheroics. Captain Adam is stupid. 
he is the he is the worst leader. The inferior five could have done a better job in this adventure. <laughs> Barry Man would have had a plan for heaven's sake. Hey, you know what? That reminds me. Um, you grew up reading the X Men, right? Yes. Conventional wisdom, as I understand, is, is Cyclops is pretty much a bad leader. Is that still the conventional wisdom? I'm not the person to ask about that because Cyclops is my favorite character. I can't be unbiased to that. Okay, decision. that's fine. Because when I was reading X Men, Cyclops was the guy who led his team from the freaking Antarctic across the Pacific Ocean, battled menaces in Japan, got them back across the ocean, battled the menace in Canada, got them home, battled the menace in another dimension, got them across the Atlantic, battled another menace and suffered casualties and kept his team together. That's Cyclops the leader. And then Claremont had to go mess that up. <laughs> but... <laughs> well, I, I think there's some different things going on here. Um, first off, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I'm not going to deny anything you've said there. I will defend one aspect of this team that's not even demonstrated that well in this issue. Uh, but as far as the, the names go, so they did say Rex, they did say Wally. Unfortunately, they dropped the ball on everyone else, though. But one of the things I've always liked about this Justice League Europe team up to this point was previously, whenever they referred to each other, they actually used their real names. Whereas over in Justice League America, everyone went by their code names. Everyone was Beetle yeah. or Booster or Fire or Ice. Here, it's Dimitri and Rex and Wally and Kara, and it's, it's great the way they use their real names, and it really gives more of a family sense, and I've always liked that. Yeah, I, I agree with that point, but that's over the long haul. Right. You've yeah. got people working together. In the, well, in, we're... we're in, Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm ranting now, so settle down yeah. there. <laughs> so I think one of the things they're suffering here is, you know, up till the first 12 or 13, 14 issues, they had a path with the the plotter and the scripter, and they brought on a new scripter, and I don't know that he's found his feet yet, and I think that's part of the problem, the the miss, the not identifying the characters, why, you know, saying things that are out of character, pointing out certain things that aren't quite working. I think that's a sign of, of that changeover. And unfortunately, yeah, I miss the earlier days when everyone was, you, you may not know Rex was more to metamorph, but you knew he's Rex because they'd say his name. They they reiterate that to you to let the readers know. So that's definitely an issue. I would agree with. Yeah, and, you and I I like that because you you said this in earlier podcasts and listening. I have listened to all these podcasts. I quite like this show. Aw, um, you're so nice. The and. What Giffen and Demetrius did early on was they set the pace, but they were able to keep the story moving, mm -hmm. and especially with the, with the um, the more actiony stories, and find that balance. Now, over the last few issues, and especially the last issue of both books, because Justice League America, regular Justice League, last podcast issue was a fill-in. Yeah, you, I think you properly identified that as a fill-in issue and a. a, a a stock inventory story that didn't quite fit the current continuity. Mm -hmm. And they've just gone through a really big story there. So that book could have used a little bit of a breather, but it still kind of felt awkward. This story, this is part four. And you said last issue was stretched out. You were right. Yeah. This is taken way too long. And I'm putting, and the scripture could have helped. A good scripture could have made it a little bit better. But this plot is too draggy. This is, this is all in Giffen and Helfer. Helfer should have said, no, man, address this, do this. How, why did, why? <clears throat> this is what's aggravating me about this comic book. I like comic books. I like superhero comic books. And this is the kind of comic book that makes them all look bad. Hmm. These you're you're a gamer. You ever been in a in a module where the dungeon master tried to make you do something and none of the players wanted to do it, and he had to sort of coerce it and force it 
dude, this is insane. This is exactly the words I was going to use is the the story reads like it's on rails, which is a RPG term for when you have to follow a very specific path. Yes. Because the characters have almost very little, I don't want to say none, but they have very, very little agency in this issue. They don't make almost any of the decisions about what happens. It's all happening to them. Exactly. They're, they're passive. They're passive the entire, I don't want to read superhero comics about passive heroes. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for them to, to walk right into this place without checking it out. I was just thinking this day, okay, a hundred things to, okay, what do you do? How can you, Wally can go super, can scout it. And if you want to get the heroes there, Wally goes to scout it out and he doesn't come back. Okay, now I have to go rescue him. There's a motivation there. But in this story, they could leave anytime. They don't mm-hmm. have to be there. They're not being held by force. And Captain Adam says, we may never get out of here at one point. Yeah, of course, you just get out of here. Use your powers, Captain Adam. Use an electromagnetic force, an electromagnetic pulse, and knock out all energy transmission. Knock out all motors around. All the robots will stop. All the rides will stop, the so-called rides. This energy has got to be coming from someplace. Can't you find the source for that? Right. All, all good points that could have easily resolved the issues. Yeah, and then they can make, make another menace somehow. Because that's, I mean, that's... That's what a superhero story is. There's, there's the bad person. They do a bad thing. The good person confronts them. The bad person gets away. Part two, the hero figures it out, goes back, and using the brains, makes an alteration and captures the bad guy. That's, that's the pattern. That's fine. I like that. But it's not, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. We don't have any powers. Power Gold does nothing. Crimson Fox does nothing. Ralph does nothing. He's a detective for heaven's sake. He didn't twitch his nose just once. And you're, you pointed something out earlier about the padding and everything. I mean, originally, the story was advertised as three issues. Mm. And then it was advertised as four issues. And finally, it settled at five. So yeah, it's it's it looks like a three-issue story stretched across five issues. And it feels that way. It really yeah, does. Yeah, it really does. Yeah. Now, you were knocking Power Girl's collar. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change tracks a little bit and talk a little <laughs> about the art. I, I know I'm in the minority here, but I am loving this new suit. Specifically the collar, actually. I dig the mock turtleneck thing. You know, does it serve a function? No. Except no. maybe to hold her chin apparently, according to you. But it's distinctive. And when you see it, it, it immediately says Power Girl. And I love it when heroes have a distinctive costume feature. With so many heroes, it's it's not easy to be dis- distinctive because there's so many of them out there. Like, I had a conversation with Jerry Conway where he was, and him and Al, Al Milgram were telling me how they specifically designed Firestorm so that when you saw him in silhouette, you would know by his shoulder pads, his shirt, and his hair who that character was. Yeah, that's a good design. And Power Girl, similarly, with her design, you know, with that, that uh, haircut and with the, the mock turtleneck and her figure, quite honestly, you can tell that yeah. that's Power Girl. And I, I think that's very clever. And I like that aspect. I know a lot of people don't like the costume. I dig well, it. That's the only distinctive part of that costume. I'm, I mean, I'm looking, I look at every panel here and I, don't, I do not enjoy this penciler. Well, I and understand. Yeah. Because he's drawing, he's drawing Kara. I like Kara. He's drawing her the same way every way. Her right hip is thrust out. He's using the same photo image over and over again. And she's got her head tilted to the right. And that's why her chin is always in her collar. And it's, it's, and it's, he, he doesn't vary her. And that's part of the reason because they don't know what to do with her. Yeah. She's not standing like the power girl I know. She's not flying. Maybe she can't fly anymore. I, I know they, they tried to depower her and change her up, but they don't explain anything. As far as this issue is concerned, this woman is baggage. 
Yeah, a, there's a lot of people who don't do a lot, and I think you're right. It's down to the plot, really, in this yeah. one. So now, mm. yeah, speaking of the way they draw women, I didn't appreciate how the issue starts with a giant gratuitous butt shot on uh, Crimson Fox. That wasn't yeah. necessary. I mean, sure, it's hot. I like that, but I mean, it's it's unnecessary, and it's just a Bart Sears thing. He he really goes for the beefcake and the cheesecake shots, and uh, yeah. that one that one was just a little more gratuitous. Thing. And she's climbing a pole for no reason. It just for uh, no reason. Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. was she was she put in there by accident? First thing she does. Get get on a new world and kind of the pole. Yeah. Now I'm going to give a compliment to the art here on page 11. Uh, in and I only know this because I was reading on Comicsology in panel by panel mode, yeah. and that really blows everything up. So you're really focused on the art. There's on page 11. There's this great panel. It's a sixth panel, and it's just uh, Ralph is stretching to catch up with him. He's stretching his legs. Yeah. But in the background, you can see that Rocket Red is holding the door open for Crimson Fox. And I that's thought, that's right. Yeah. Eh, he's a gentleman. That's nice. I like that. Mm-hmm. The other, my other issues with the art is that Bart Sears does not give us any good sense of space, of where we are or what is happening. Yeah? But give me and, an example. Okay. Um, when they arrive at, at Wacky World, okay. they're several, several dozen meters away at the bottom of page three. Yeah. And page four, they're right in the middle of something. Mm-hmm. There's distinctive a castle turret. Yeah. And then there are a few other buildings that there's an archway and there's... There's a red building and a blue building, which with no distinction of what they might be, what they're for. Oh, see, I disagree completely. It's well, this is just an example. It's a tight plaza. We don't know how they got in. They're just there, and and the rest and the rest of the time, every place they go, there's no really sense of where it is. I know it's supposed to be a little disorienting, but even at the, at the climax. Well, hold on, hold on. I got to tell the people why you're wrong because that's my favorite part. Okay. <laughs> so on the previous page, they're flying towards this amusement park, right? And then where Terry says there's no perspective, they actually shows them come flying in and they land. And then that shot, they, the, 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 but the angle is from the ground. We're already right. in the, the viewer is already in the park. Well, okay, that's fair. But the next shot where they show Ralph's neck stretching and they're tiny. I mean, yeah. that panel to me is brilliant because that shows me, oh, they're in Disney World because I see the castle, I see Fantasyland, I see the weird shaped buildings, I see Future World or Tomorrowland or whatever it's called and you see characters in the background you like on the on portraits on the wall to me that says boom they're in Disneyland now I get it now I know what's happening if one has never been in Disneyland and this one has not hey a mantis all of a sudden <laughs> I've been I've worked in amusement parks okay but this doesn't ring as anything to me because that's not how an amusement park would be designed there's no place for for people to move. There's no freaking door in that blue building with a slopey roof with That's the orange. The it's... door's just around the corner. <laughs> All right, you're yelling at clouds now, sir. I know. What that. else is wrong? <laughs> when Wally finally runs, he remembers what he can do. Why his boots on? On page eighteen. <laughs> yeah, page eighteen. He starts to run, and again, they're they're in a place. They're in an auditorium. The last time we see them, page 16, they're in an auditorium with chairs and a low ceiling and a stage. That's cool. Then at page 18, they're not. That's fair. I'll give you that. Well, it looks like they're back. You're right. You can't tell where they I'm guessing backstage, but yeah, you're right. You do lose perspective of where they are at this point. Yes. I mean, again, I know it's supposed to be disoriented, but I don't think there's a really sense, there's a good sense of space of what it should be. And um, it's it's just disappointing. And the, and the pacing is just feels really... Not good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Understood. I'm I'm mostly just disappointed because they don't do anything. The heroes don't do anything. It's it's so plot driven. It really yeah. it really is. So I want to ask there's you. There's no plot. <laughs> well, it's it, that's another thing. Okay, so ultimately it does feel to me to be a confusing issue without a resolution because it's a part four. Uh, it's a bit like a Doctor Who. You watch part three and this is a bunch of running down <laughs> corridors. But uh, it, it does feel to me like there's supposed to be a mystery unfolding here, even though Ralph's nose doesn't wiggle. But it feels like there's a mystery unfolding. But there doesn't feel like there's really any clues to to follow well maybe a couple uh, a couple clues to decipher like for example let me ask you a question here someone has coming to this basically cold um at the very end that sealed chamber that opens i know yeah. what that is but as someone who hasn't read the issue uh, i'm assuming you haven't read part five yet is that fair i have not okay who do you think that is or what do you think that is well all the clues point to the the uh, ersatz walt disney you know, okay based yeah. on the legend of you know him being frozen or his head being frozen Perfect. Yeah, you nailed it. Okay, so the clues were there. So I wasn't sure if enough clues were there for someone to get it, but you absolutely nailed it. That's exactly what it is. Okay. Uh, spoilers. Sorry, folks. But, uh, okay. But that has nothing to do with the Justice League. But it has everything to do with the park they're in. You know the setting is there. But they don't have to be in the park. But the park's where, where the whole crux of this issue is all about. Exactly. And that's my point. They don't have to be there. Oh, you mean they could have left is what you're saying? Yes. This is, I mean, this is not my fight is what they should say. Well, it's it's necessary for the plot because of what they're going to reveal next issue. Yeah. But I, I get what you're saying. that There's a lot of storytelling angles they could have approached. Like you said, all the things you said they could have used to defeat the park. But for the story to work, they have to be there. So it does feel a lot like a role-playing adventure uh, that's on rails, like we said. Yeah. But they could have done, you know, the, the classic thing of, of splitting up into teams, three right. teams of two. Or what this, one of the, uh, the antecedents for this story, the X-Men versus Arcade. You know, everybody has their own little world to fight. Oh, that's the thing about the art that bugged me. There's no sense of, if this is a, an ersatz Walt Disney world, there's no sense of the theme character. There's, we want to see that image over and over again. Who is the character around which the theme park is based? Oh, the, the Mickey Mouse. I see what you're saying. Yeah, okay. a, a Mickey Mouse kind of thing. There should That image should be everywhere. So we should easily identify it. But well, that's not there. We do see a purple mouse a couple of times, but, but it, just, yeah. it just seems like a generic character, not exactly. the focus of the park. It's a yeah. generic character. Yeah. If anything, Carney seems like he's the focus. At first, when I first started right. reading the issue, I thought Carney was supposed to be like the Disney-like character. Uh, and then I realized, just as you said, he's a, he's he's the DC analog of Arcade. Just yeah. like the rest of the extremists are, are analogs of Marvel characters, Carney is an analog of Arcade. I thought maybe it was an analog of Mojo at one point, but it's, it's supposed to be Arcade. I had to look yeah. it up to be sure. And if, if at one point... Connie vanishes when he's he's attacked. Earlier, which, they, he, which they never explain. Yeah, and earlier he knocks out the whole team with some sort of gas. If he had knocked out the team and kidnapped a couple of them right away, now there's a motivation for them to stay, and they could fight all sorts of wacky things. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know an anthropomorphic mouse or two, and we could see the heroes use their powers. And you could get some of this background detail in if you felt it absolutely necessary about the history of Angor, which leads me to my next point. Can I go to my next point now? <laughs> Please do. <laughs> this is the world of Angor. Am I correct? Uh, yes, it is. Or it's, the, it's either world or parallel dimension, whatever it is in the post-crisis universe. Shag, yes. where is Angor? Uh, meaning, where does it say Angor, you mean, or what? Where? Is Angor. Well, again, it depends on if you're defining pre-crisis, post-crisis. I'm asking you because you've read all these issues. Oh, my gosh. At this point, it's supposed to be like a parallel dimension. Yeah, that's my... Yeah, right. Okay. So you're telling me the Anti-Monitor ate up Earth 2 and Earth S and Earth 3 and left freaking Angor? It's not a parallel... Okay, this is where you get into the post-crisis <laughs> persnicketiness. This is not a parallel Earth. It is a, it parallel is a world. parallel dimension. So That it's, dimension it's, survived? 
Well, it's, it, 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 you're, you're not thinking fourth dimensionally, my friend, as the doctor would say. <laughs> <laughs> Dimensions are different than parallel worlds. Just accept it. Move on. This is it's, just another, another parallel world where English just happened to rise and there's some sort of United States. Oh, well, dude, last issue, they, had, they showed an American flag in Angor. I mean, it's like, there what? There you go. There you go. It's just not called Earth. Right. Oh, that's, oh I'm going to retroactively go back and rewrite a story. That Earth 2 says we're changing our name from Earth to something else and the anti-monitor will leave us alone. No, I don't want that to be the case. I don't want this to be Earth 2. Earth 2 is... No, I I want Earth 2 back. I want the real Earth 2. You know what? It's still there in your all-star comics. It's still there in your detective (laughs) comic, your world's finest. It's all still in your comic book long boxes. It's all still there. There's not going to be a next issue. I want the next issue. (laughs) I know. I know. I just want to say the good Bob LaPan over all of these issues, both books, he's just magnificent. His work is so integral to the look of Justice League at this time. Oh, he's absolutely the unsung hero of all oh, the JLI. Yes. Yeah, oh, I mean, yes. It's 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 funny how much a letterer you don't you don't necessarily think about him, but when you see his writing, you know it. It's like you can't help but like, oh, I recognize his handwriting, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's just magical. It's wonderful. It sure is. Mm. Yeah, it's it's terrific stuff. And I love that consistency. Most of my favorite books had a, a good John Workman on Thor, sure, uh, Orsatowski on X Men. You know, remember the good letterers. Absolutely. So we've been a little harsh on the issue, but there are things to love. At least for me, I mean, you, you you're very critical of Bart Sears art. There's stuff with Captain Adam that I love in here because he's so shiny. I love that shininess. I do like Kara's costume. There's a lot of beautiful women in this. I think <laughs> Carney's kind of funny. There's some fun stuff uh, to, to to like, but from a plot perspective and dialogue perspective, there are some real challenges with this issue. There's certainly JLE issues I've enjoyed more. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. So. even the dialogue. There's no there are no good quips. This this scripter does not have the right handle on it. Yeah, we're, we're we're definitely not there yet. I'm hoping we see some improvement, but we'll have to see as we go. And you know what? This this story may work better reading in five issues in a row than rather trying to reading it one by one each month. So I don't know. But at the end, uh, it's it's uh, it's it's part of a whole. At the end of the day, it really is part of a whole mm-hmm. and it's not its own standalone story. And inviting Terry was a terrible mistake. So I'm going to hang up now and find oh, a new like guest. Oh, like it's my fault these heroes gonna, don't know how to do anything. I'm going to re-record I this entire episode with a different guest. Right at the beginning, I told them what to do. <laughs> they could have sussed it out. They could have figured out where they were. It's like we never left the lobby of that hotel <laughs> and we're just still arguing. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, we're going to step away from the issue itself, and now we are going to tackle the One Punch Award. This is where we nominate our favorite moment from the issue, whether it be fantastic or shocking or dramatic or funny or awe-inspiring or whatever. Both myself and Terry will pick one moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted One Punch Award. Now, Terry, you're the guest, which has been a serious burden for me, uh, and maybe for the people at home, too. I don't know. We'll see from the comments. sorry. You had to learn so much all at once. I'm afraid I filled your brain too quickly. <laughs> Killing me. All right, go. Just go. <laughs> what do you got? Uh, well, I'm torn between the, the panel of the heroes standing around doing nothing and the hero of the heroes sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> okay. The only thing, the only thing they do in this issue, I have to give it to Metamorpho. Metamorpho changes to a big giant head of, of the metal man lead and, and covers everybody up. We don't know what element he turned into. You couldn't bother to say. <laughs> Must be lead because it's this radio radiation around apparently. So that's but that's all they do. Yeah, that's so, it. So I give it to Metamorpho. 
They give it to Metamorph for, for turning into a dome to save everyone, and he says, yeah, except for Crimson, Crimson Fox. He says you'll have to, right? Well, no, it's uh, Silver Sorceress. He doesn't save. He saves Crimson yeah, Fox. Silver, yep. Yeah, Silver Sorceress. So he says you'll have to pardon me, guys. All right, fair enough. So that is your nomination. Mine is, it's another a moment where they don't have any agency, but it's when they're on the ride, uh, and they're like, it's uh, they get strapped to a ride, and they have to go through it. And basically, it's like it's a small world, but it's showing them how the world was destroyed because that does feel what it's like when you're on the it's a small roll ride it just feels like the whole world is dying around you and there's nothing you can do about it because it's so uh painful and then that earworm gets in your head however as i sit here and say it uh, mine was mine was a tough pick i think yours is probably actually the better pick in the issue there's another example of why i don't like bob bard sears this it's a small world wacky world ride mm-hmm. apparently the screens are only on the left side so everybody has to turn their head to the left to look at this thing as I'm looking here, you're not wrong. <laughs> no, just, he's consistent about where people are sitting. And conveniently, Wacky World was designed with an extra big seat for a guy with rocket red armor. That's convenient. <laughs> and they could get his, his big bulky hands locked into something under there. Right, right. Oh, man. <laughs> All right. Well, before Terry goes nuts and bashes this issue even more, we're going to go ahead and award the One Punch Award to Metamorpho for maybe saving the team and not Silver Sorceress with his quick or thinking. He's either saving them or he's just killing them right away to get them out of their misery. That's true. We don't know that it's concave he's on the inside. He's turned into chlorine gas and is going to cover them up. <laughs> Well, congratulations to Metamorpho. You are the winner of the One Punch Award, whatever that might mean this month. Please wear it with pride. It is as intangible as, well, you are when you're chlorine gas killing the Justice League. We need more than one punch. We need a punch with the scripter, the plotter, the editor, the penciler. Not the letterer. The letterer did a great job. He doesn't get a punch. I promise you, there are things in life that Terry likes. It's just nothing that I like. So, Terry, ice I need... cream. You like ice cream, right? That is true. I do. I yeah, love ice I like cream. ice cream. <laughs> now, I need to ask a favor, Terry. Would what? you mind hanging around here for a little bit? Maybe dig around in the rubble caused by Carney and see if any of our colorful heroes survived, or maybe they were gas with chlorine gas. Would you mind hanging out? I don't. I, you know, first I'm going to check out the rubble in the kitchen. That's my plan. <laughs> That sounds like a solid plan, my friend. Well, don't worry, Terry. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while Terry's taking care of that for us, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. Now, just a little bit of news before we get into your feedback. Actor Tony Curran, and I'm probably saying that name wrong, has been cast as the DC Comics villain Despero, who will be showing up at the start of The Flash Season 8, who will also be part of the Armageddon five-part event series. Now, if you don't know the actor Tony Curran, uh, he's from shows such as Defiance and Ray Donovan, but uh, I don't even know what those are. The important thing is, he was in Doctor Who, and he played Van Gogh. Believe me, if you saw the episode, you cried. So, thanks to Sean Ross for the heads up on this and pointing out that Elrond later inhabits Despero's body. So, I guess Van Gogh is kind of playing Elrond. Nice! 
Now, folks, remember, get out on the social media. Use our hashtag FWPodcast or tag us at JLI Podcast. As I always say, it is about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments, if you're outside of the United States, let me know, and we will assign you to the appropriate embassy. Now, we're going to be covering your comments from our website, uh, email, social media, things like that. We're just going to be pulling bits and pieces, covering the most recent episode featuring Justice League America number 41 with Chris Houghton and Justice League Europe number 17 with Brent Thomas. First up, Michael Kramer wrote in to say, In the recent Maxwell Lord story arc in Wonder Woman, we found out that Max has a daughter who has the same powers as he does. Now, Max's daughter has red hair, very much like Wanda. And my first thought was, whatever happened to Wanda? Max kind of sort of walks out on her towards the end of the run. At least we never see Wanda during the Jurgens runner later. The idea that Max might have left Wanda alone with a child plays into the stereotypical rich corporate jerk who takes what he wants and leaves everyone else to deal with the consequences of being in his orbit of influence. Wow, you know, I actually read some of those issues, Michael, and that would be fascinating if that is Wanda and Max's daughter. Huh. Something to think about. Then we'll hear from Gus Casals from our Argentina embassy. He does podcasts such as the Alfred Pennyworth Presents podcast and his Legion 60 Years Later show. He says, uh, legend says that a 20-year-old Jeff Johns found a battered copy of JLA number 41, missing the last few pages, and took that as canon. Thus, DC Comics 2005 onwards. <laughs> I like that. That's good, Gus. Then he says, regarding JLA 41, he goes, it, to my eyes, it was one of the all-around weakest issues of the run. For all the reasons you mentioned, throwaway story, mediocre art, and really questionable morals. Then he says, I concur with the assessment of Just League Europe. What you love is really lovable, and what you hate is really hateful. And as mentioned, most likely the product of extending the storyline. Yeah. Thanks, Gus. Appreciate the feedback. I'm glad to see we're not alone. Then Rob McCarthy chimes in about how there's not a lot of Russian superheroes. He says Marvel has the Winter Guard. He says he hates that name. He says, does every Russian name have to have winter in it? Well, Rob, I got to tell you, a past guest of this show, David Gallagher, had a chance to write Marvel's Winter Guard, so they will forever hold a place in my heart. Now from Mike Gillis from the Radio vs. the Martians podcast and podcast La Vista, baby. He says, maybe I'm a weirdo, but I liked General Glory. Well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, I asked for people to chime in who liked General Glory. Mike wasn't alone. Uh, Captain Entropy also says, probably I'm a weirdo, and I liked him. Martin Gray says, I thought he was splendid. Tim Price is also a big fan of General Glory, and is in fact trying to set up some sort of General Glory chant going on over on the website. So check that out. Roger Preeb also loves General Glory, and he shared on Twitter a sketch that he got of General Glory by Linda Medley. That was awesome. Thank you, Roger. Then we're from Lizanne Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, the Maxwell Lode story isn't bad. I think it is, in fact, making fun of the 1990s. First, his name is Max Force. Could not be more 90s than that unless you were written by Rob Liefeld. And the giant guns on the cover. (laughs) Those were very 90s. That's a good point. Then Liz says, Crimson Fox's accent is definitely way over the top. For whatever reason, comics always do that. Even her French Parisian accent is way overdone here. It's not Gambit level, but it's still pretty bad. (laughs) I had to read that just for the dig at Gambit. Thank you. (laughs) Then we heard from Mike Dinas from our Pacific Canadian Embassy. Mike says, another fantastic episode, everyone. Chris and Brent were great and helped check off Shag's international guest card. And I thoroughly enjoyed the recaps of the two issues. Oh, you're very nice, Mike. Thank you. Then he says about Just League Europe, he goes, I know there are missiles on the cover. I mean, I know, but they always look like ballpoint pens to me. It kind of lessens the evilness of Dr. Die Hard. And then uh, I asked a lot of people to chime in last episode about those unidentified characters in Justice League Europe who were supposed to be other heroes that were disgruntled about not being able to help. He says, as far as the mysterious heroes on page 11, I would guess the bottom panel is someone from Metropolis, considering he's reading the Daily Planet and the newsstand seller is wearing a Superman shirt. So did Agent Liberty, Gangbuster, or the Guardian ever have a beard and were active around this time? Hmm. Well, compliments to your detective skills there, Mike. Uh, Good call on nailing that as Metropolis, but I don't know that we've nailed it down yet. Um, Mike goes on with a whole lot of other theories as well, all out there on the website you can check out. 
Martin Gray from our Scottish Embassy in the Too Dangerous for Girl blog says, As for the chap with braces, how I snicker at suspenders, it's Mark Merlin. Okay, it doesn't look like him, and he has nowhere to be seen in the DCU in 1990, but why the heck not? Yeah, Mark Merlin. So that's it. It has to be. <laughs> Thank you for that random speculation, Martin. Uh, by the way, if you didn't catch it in Stargirl Season 2, uh, first couple episodes, there is an Easter egg about Mark Merlin. Ooh, that's not any spoiler, I promise you. Then Martin goes on because Chris had mentioned he read the Superman magazine in England growing up. Martin says, thanks to Shag for another top show and how lovely to hear another English person and one who paid my wages too. <laughs> Chris was a great co-host, as was Brent. I love the Japanese. And Martin says, as for the JLI comic, okay, it's a fill-in, but I hate dream issues. And especially so soon after John's mind trick on Despro. Has anyone ever really enjoyed a dream issue? Mind, it could have been worse. It could have been Kitty's fairy tale. Whoa! Okay, Martin, I was like totally there with you about dream issues. I'm not typically a fan, but this is not a safe space to hate on Kitty's fairy tale. Oh my gosh, you you found the wrong audience, sir. Then we heard from Terry O'Malley. I, I don't know who that is. I've never heard of this guy. Anyway, he said, I want to be the first to guess at the bearded mystery man. Uh, I think it's Andrew Vinson. And if you know who that is, then you know. And you're probably eligible for AARP. <laughs> Sorry, Terry. I had to Google Andrew Vinson. Then we heard from Jason Lady, author of the young adult humorous fantasy adventure novels, Monster Problems and Super Problems. Jason says, The Mystery Heroes. I wonder if the guy with the tie and suspenders is supposed to be Dr. Magnus, leader of the Metal Men with miscolored hair. Or could it be Jason Blood? A little later, he says, I looked to see what DC Comics were out of the time for clues of who the bearded guy might be. Did Mark Shaw, a.k.a. Manhunter, ever sport a beard? Didn't Will Payton Starman spend some time watering the country and grow a beard? Those are all good guesses, Jason, but I, I don't think we're there yet. Then he says, the strangest thing about Silver Sorceress is this story would have been the perfect chance to give her a new costume. Current one gets torn up, so she makes a new start in something silver and a little less bizarre headgear. But instead, they keep her in the same costume. Weird choice. It's not like she's immediately recognizable iconic character or anything. Yeah, you're right. This would have been a great chance to put Silver Sorceress in a silver costume. I hadn't thought about that. Just other possibilities for the suspenders guy. Geoforce. He ran his own company. It was known to rock a suit. He'd also have a butler around given his royalty and all. That's a possibility. Definitely could be. Then we heard from Chris Franklin of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, and right now he's doing the House of Franklinstein and many more. Chris says, I think Shag may have been onto something with this being an inventory tale. It does have that out of place vibe with those types of stories have. Also, as Shag pointed out, McCone's art seems more amateurish. Look at Max's tiny ear on page 10, for instance. And he says, speaking of wonky anatomy, I can't get behind Dr. Diehard's tiny chicken legs on the cover of Jaylee number 17. That foreshortening is hard to draw, I know. But once I saw it, I can't unsee it. So it must be off, at least for me. As for who that green-haired gent is, I was thinking Sarge Steele. But if that's the case, then Bart Sears, or Giffen on Layouts, dropped the ball in having Steele's trademark metal hand behind his back. Yeah, Chris, you know, the internet seems to think that is Sarge Steele. So I, I think you may be right, but I don't know any way to validate it. Then we heard from Symbol Pending from our UK embassy, who does the Symbol Pending Power Girl blog. They jumped out, I am so proud of you, Symbol Pending, and totally showed their Doctor Who cred, because Chris and I threw some Doctor Who references in the last episode, and Symbol Pending stepped up to the plate and says, are we talking the brains of Morbius or the Night of the Doctor, Sisterhood of Karn? Oh, bless you, Symbol Pending. Bless you. Then Symbol Pending goes on to talk about Maxwell Lord and says, I'm glad you mentioned how he treated Huntress. As I listened along, I couldn't help but think of how she was treated and how it was questionably how heroic he was being. As it came to the end of Maxwell Lord's story, you know, those stories no one remembers, I don't have the warm and fuzzies about him. So right now, he's very much on the edge of villain here. Right now, I'm deep into the Huntress Power Girl era, so I'm probably a little more sensitive to such things, to be honest. Uh, yeah, you know, you could be right. I mean, 
there are some really irreprehensible things Max is doing here. And those things seem so out of character versus the rest of the Maxwell Lord that we know and love. So, I don't know. You can't really ignore them. So maybe he is a villain who does some good stuff. Or maybe he's just a flawed human being who's made some really bad mistakes. I'm not sure. But it does feed into those uh, later Maxwell Lord stories that you referenced. Then Symbol Pendant goes on to say about Just League Europe number 17's cover, it's sad to say that I was so focused on the, to be a little crass, pair of double Ds that I missed all the missiles surrounding the team. Though in my defense for Kara, it's her blank face. Though I too like the sleeveless version. The collar, though, it's really starting to get on my nerves as it keeps getting in the way of her face and makes the images just look off. I still like the rest of the costume for now, so that's a plus at least. Well, there we go. So at least you like part of the costume. And, you know, chime in on what you think about the collar because, yeah, Terry pointed out some good things about the collar, but I think that's more a failing of the artist than the costume design. But that's just me. Then Simple Penning says, I'm also glad that they're starting to add some depth to Crimson Fox. It's just a shame that they went for the classic route of giving her beef with the only other female hero on the team. Yeah, that's a good observation. That is sort of a stereotypical issue, and hopefully we won't see that continue, but I don't know. We'll find out as we go. Then we're from Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and the Legion of Super Bloggers. Ange says, I wonder if the Max issue isn't available on the website because of his unsavory use of powers on the woman. In this day and age, it might be too controversial. You might be right, Dr. Ange. Then we heard from Tim Price from the Outcasters, Batman and the Outsiders podcast and the Batgirl and Huntress podcast. Tim says, for Just Like America number 41, this is definitely a shelved story. So the question becomes, where should it fit into continuity? Our major landmarks are Max's power was gained in issue number 24, the JLA members in their dreams and their costumes, Fire and Ice's costumes changed in issue 31. So I'd say the story's somewhere between those. Max seems to have a good handle on his powers by this story, and he only used them once in issue number 24, calling for Beetle's help. Number 26, saving himself from attacking Beetle. And number 30, convincing Hunters to join the team. Bad, bad Max. And Max's understanding of his power makes me think that it's after he used it a couple of times, and based on the story's conclusion, I don't think it'd be before issue 30, so my conclusion is that's between issue number 30 and 31. Now that leads to the worst rabbit hole of thoughts. Is that why Max is pouring on the charm when Huntress came to the embassy, determined to sway her without using his power, but still not willing to admit to her or anyone else what he's done? Wow, Tim, as you said, you really did go down a rabbit hole there of trying to uh, retcon this. Now, it might not be a retcon, though, because if this is an inventory story, it could have actually been written in between issue 30 and 31, and maybe you're right. I don't know. All all good questions, all good food for thought. Thank you, Tim. Then Tim goes on to say, Crimson Fox has always been, in her own words, impudent since her first appearance. So sarcasm is perfectly in her character. And then he says, I wanted me more Dimitri in this issue. He didn't get enough screen time about the Moscow attack. His wife and kids just moved from there at the end of issue 12. What if they had other family in the city or friends? He potentially had plenty to be upset about besides the Rocket Reds and could have given us more exploration into his character. Aw, well. You're right, Tim. Sadly, Rocket Red continues to not be as explored as much as he should be. Then we heard from DC Dave, who also was proving his Doctor Who cred. He says, he said, I'm a podcast co-host, but probably not the one you're expecting. Oh, Dave, you made my heart sing with the Paul McGann reference. I love it. And he goes on to say, I will admit I had forgotten about this issue of JLA. The art is hit or miss for me. There are moments of greatness, like when the group shot near the end. The classic JLI faces that really define the book can be seen here. I do like Max's costume design, and the MF on the costume leads me to think of another set of words that MF might stand for, which seems appropriate for Mr. Lord. <laughs> yeah, DC Dave. You're right. And uh, a few other people commented on the MF as well. Then we're from Doug Van Diver, who says, On the Rudolfo bit with the chauffeur, there's no way that this isn't a reference to a scene played during the title sequence in credits of Mel Brooks' The Producers. You know, when Max Bielstock is truckling to his patron, a rich widow, with a bit of a role play as Rudolfo the chauffeur while she's role playing the amorous countess. And Leo Bloom walks in on the seduction tableau to his extreme paralyzing chagrin. Of course, I don't need to describe this scene. You've seen the movie. No, Doug. No, I haven't. Anyway, Doug continues. But here in the comic, it's 
It's Maxwell Lord who wants the driver to be Rodolfo, which casts him in turn as the naughty widow countess figure. So I guess you go, Max. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Sorry, I couldn't help you with the actual movie reference myself. Then we hear from Adam Crouch who says, could you tell me how to find that Booster Gold song you played? I enjoyed the show. Ah, well, thank you, Adam. Yeah, at the, uh, as a stinger last time, I played just a snippet of the Booster Gold song. That is a song that my guest Chris actually referenced during the, his discussion with me, and it's what spurred me to play it. Apparently, it's from an album called Spoiler Alert. You can find that out on the interwebs to listen to and buy. They were from Dave Steele. He says, continuing my listening of the JLI podcast, and I've just read issue number six of Just League Europe for the first time in decades. Amazing. Aw. Well, thank you, Dave, for listening. And if you just read issue number six, then you're probably not going to hear this for quite a while. They were from Jake Muir from our South African embassy. Jake says, I was lucky enough to get the production paste up for the Just League Europe number 17 cover. Although it's not the original art, I'm happy with these that were some of my favorite JLE issues as a kid. Yeah, he shared the picture of that paste up, and that is really freaking cool, Jake. That is awesome. They were from Ryan McGee. I'm sorry, Ryan. I'm probably missing your last name. Ryan says, I'm truly glad I found your blogs. This group of heroes have always been my favorite iteration of the League, with Beetle being my all-time number one favorite character. I'm just about to start the Meanwhile JLI Annual number one. Keep up the good work. Ah, awesome. Well, thank you for listening, and I'm sorry you had to listen to that episode. It does have Jared, the yard sale artist, so I apologize. All right, now, folks, uh, it is time to award a Double Stuff Award. I don't do these too often. Double Stuff Awards uh, go out to folks who go above and beyond to do something awesome to either promote the JLI or the podcast or whatever. And this one goes out to Dr. Ange. Dr. Ange took the time to scan in pages from his copy of the beloved magazine, Comic Scene. And folks, if you ever read Comic Scene growing up, you know what I'm talking about. We love it. So he specifically scanned pages from issue number six, which was an interview with Keith Giffen promoting the launch of Just League Europe and the Acronym Legion. And let me tell you, folks, I learned some things. Uh, interestingly, in the interview with Giffen, he says things like fire and ice were added because Kevin McGuire said he, quote, wanted to draw babes. And they were the only two female characters nobody wanted. <laughs> now, uh, knowing Giffen, it's probably a little tongue-in-cheek, but still, made me laugh. Then he says, Giffen purposely ignored Fire's old crazy powers. Like, she had the ability with her fire breath to cause hallucinations? So he ignored all that. Instead, he wanted more like a matter-eater lad. Uh, so in this case, a human butane lighter. Someone with very weak power said that makes you wonder, why are they there? But then he goes on to say that there's going to be some stuff happening with her. Obviously, those are allusions to what happened to her with uh, an invasion with her power boost. He also says he patterned Fire a little bit after Iris Chacon. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Iris Chacon, a bombastic Latino entertainer. I googled her and yeah, I can kind of see it. He also mentioned a British hero who they plan to introduce in one of the books. Now, being that this was, you know, around the time of JLE number one, I wonder what he's thinking of. I don't know if he's thinking of Crimson Fox, who maybe started off British and became uh, French. I'm not sure. Or if they're already thinking about the Beef Eater, who's in future issues to come. Then Giffen said he was in constantly in touch with Carrie Bates about Captain Adam. They specifically called out how there's some JLI-related stuff going on in Captain Adam that he's not going to touch on in the JLI series. So clearly he's talking about all the spy stuff that was embedded in the, in the Captain Adam book that they never touched on in the JLI series. And that was a focus of a past episode. Actually, me and Martin Gray talked all about the Captain Adam conspiracy. All right, folks. So this is the part where we thank everyone who shared the show on their social media timeline, Facebook and Twitter. All you got to do is click share on Facebook or retweet on Twitter. As I say, every month, it's a very long list of names. However, these folks really show their support and help promote the show. They're bringing new people to the table. So it's important to me that I want to recognize these individuals. So here's to everyone who helped promote last episode on Facebook or Twitter. So our thanks to all new Doctor Who Book Club podcast. Andy Luke, Between the Pages blog, Bill Beer, Billy Delicious, Booker T. Dog, 
Brett Thomas, Brian Dockery, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Clinton Robinson, and his accounts for Coffee and Comics, Days of High Adventure podcast, and Fan Films Fridays podcast. Daniel Ulrich, Dave Steele, Dave's Comic Heroes blog, David Ace Gutierrez, Derek J. Wyatt, Doug Zoisha, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, Ed Moore, Frederico Hernandez, FKA Jason, Greg Hoyle, Gus Casals, Homework the Podcast, Into the Weird, Jake Muir, John Wilson, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Liz Ann Oswald, The Long Box of Darkness, Mark Lax, Martin Kogan, Matt Anderson, Max Romero, Michael Kramer, Mike Dynas, Nuno Duarte, Paul Kean, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. Honestly, I think Gord only retweets just so he gets to hear me say that. <laughs> uh, relatively Geeky. Rob Kelly and his accounts for Digest Cast, Super Friends for All Mankind Podcast, Mountain Comics, and Treasury Comics. Roger Preeb, Ryan McGee, Sean Ross and Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Terry O'Malley, Tim Price and the Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast, Trent Lewis, Willie Yarbrough, and Zeb Oswald. Woof. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, and the community of JLI fans we have built together is absolutely amazing. I love all of you. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Chris Horton or Brent Thomas. Let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. Our website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there on the show post. Also, hit us up on Facebook as the JLI Podcast or Justice League International Bahaha Podcast. On Twitter, we're JLI Podcast. You can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Chris Horton and Brent Thomas for appearing on the most recent episode of the show. And thanks to you listeners for such an amazing collection of feedback. I mean it. Seriously, guys, thank you. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Doug and Terry together in the same embassy. On your mark, get set, go for the Fire and Water Network Superman Virtual Run. Coming this October, join comic book fans and fellow Fire and Water Network listeners in a 5K run. Obviously, we can't all run together in the same place, but you can do this anywhere you want. You can run or even walk around your hometown, around the block, nature trails, or even a treadmill. You can make this race your own. We're doing this in conjunction with the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run. This official virtual run comes with some cool Superman swag and is helping raise money for charity. For our Fire and Water Network run, we're recommending running a 5K. However, anyone can participate by running or even just walking as little as one mile, or you can do 5K or 10K. Your choice. For those participating, just pick any date in October to run. Many of us are targeting the week of October 18th through 24th, but any October date works. For more information and to register for the Fire and Water Network run, visit our Sign Up Genius page at fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021. That's R-U-N-2021. Once you're on the Sign Up Genius page, you'll need the access code to enter. The access code is simply the word JOY, all lowercase J-O-Y. Now, there's no cost to join this Fire and Water Network run. However, we strongly encourage you to also register for the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run on their website. It's a fun program that comes with great Superman run perks. Their fee is $40 per individual, but remember, they are helping raise money for charity. So join us for this fun, healthy, and super heroic event in October. Remember, to participate, you can do as little as walking just one mile. For more details and to sign up, visit fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021 and use the access code JOY. On your mark, get set, go!
from Supermates Recordings. Chilling sounds from the house of Franklin Stein. The blood-curdling sounds of horror in one four-episode set. Featuring your favorite stars from classic spooky films. Lon Chaney Jr. and Bella Lugosi. Father was Frankenstein, that your mother was the lightning. Peter Cushing and Stephanie Beecham. The nightmare's over. And Christopher Lee. I have returned to destroy you. Bud Abbott and Lou Costello. I'm gonna haunt him. That's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp and Johnny Depp. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. And Robert England. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Here's more. The hit House of Frankenstein theme by Terry O'Malley. Order now and you'll receive bonus comic stories featuring your favorite superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Offer ends October 31st and it's not available in any store. Here's how to order. To order the chilling sounds from the House of Frankenstein, save all credit card and COD charges by visiting firewaterpodcast.com or search for Firewater Podcast Network or Supermates. Podcatchers are standing by. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear that GLI Teleporter has brought both Doug and Terry together for us. Hey, Doug, come over here. I'll move over and make room on the embassy couch for you. Hey, uh, hey, thanks, Terry. Do you want some of these snacks? Oh, no thanks. Shag me those. Here, try one of these. I brought them from Paris. Ooh, la la, very nice. Thank you, sir. Can we please get on with this? We got a show to close here. Yeah, okay, go ahead, Chuck. This is good. Doug, yada, yada, flackada, flackada. Thank you so much for appearing on this episode of the show. Why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the internets? Buzz, 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 buzz. Uh, as far <laughs> as the internets go, I'm out there, folks. Uh, really, the only place that I, I have any internet presence anymore is Twitter, and that's first initial last name. So D Zavisha, Z-A-W-I-S-Z-A. It's probably in the show notes. I uh, promise but- you, folks, it will be in the show notes because <laughs> nobody can spell that. Even I can't after how many years we've been friends. I write your name on the Christmas card every year, and I still can't spell your last name. And and I appreciate it. But uh, yeah, that's really my only presence. I've done reviews. You can maybe still find those on various sites if you just do Zavisha Reviews or Doug Zavisha Reviews. Uh, you'll find them. I don't want to necessarily or unnecessarily plug sites. But if anyone has any thoughts or whatever, uh, feel free to reach out to me, like I said, by Twitter. I also do some writing every now and then for tomorrow's. I've written probably once every 10 or 12 issues of back issue. I'll sneak an article in there and that's really my only writing presence right now other than just shouting at the stars over on the internet on twitter <laughs> well that's awesome and doug you have a long history of blogging as well folks those are out there if you want to go search in for them. that's how doug and i met and uh, i'll forever cherish those years together sir absolutely yeah so thank you doug sincerely appreciate having you on the show again and it's been an absolute blast Yes, it has, Shag, and I can't wait to come back for issue. Did I did I pick another issue? Oh, I guess I guess we'll talk <laughs> off the air. All right. <laughs> Somebody just got bumped. <laughs> Now, Terry, thank you so much for, I think, for, <laughs> for being on the show today. Uh, you brought your own special brand of not agreeing with me, which I sincerely <laughs> appreciate and enjoyed. It was super fun. It's I'll- not a special brand. No one agrees with you, Shag. <laughs> well, 
But Terry, why don't you tell the people at home where they can find more of you on the internet? All right, friends. I'm not much on the internet, uh, but you can find me on Twitter at Ward Hill Terry. And I'm on Facebook, but I do want to plug my band, my rock and roll band, Stop Calling Me Frank, because we have a brand new single coming out this fall. It was supposed to come out this month, but there's a vinyl shortage. Yeah, it's going to be on vinyl. It'll be released digitally and on vinyl in November, we hope. It's called Hard Loving Man. So you can find out information about that on our Facebook page. You can download our music at Bandcamp and buy the single from Rumbar Records. You can also buy our two previous full-length CDs. CDs, or you can download them if you're a modern person. And if you're in Boston, like Dr. Anches, come to our show at the Midway Cafe on September 25th. If you're listening after September 25th, just buy the record. So, of course you're releasing something on vinyl, Terry. It's the perfect archaic medium. Okay, I realize it's beloved right now, but it's just, it's so fitting with your Bronze Age love of DC Comics. It just, it, it's it's perfect synchronicity, sir. I Damn applaud you. right. <laughs> well, thanks again, Terry. I sincerely appreciate it and I hope we get a chance to do an episode on something we both love someday yeah like um, actually you know what Justice Society those are my boys ah love the Justice Society awesome we will make that happen thanks again Terry I appreciate it and folks that is going to do it come back next episode when we take a sidestep to cover the premiere issue of Justice League Quarterly that's right we have reached the point in our chronology where another JLI spinoff book has launched and we'll have another guest host to help me cover the issue who will it be come on people you know how this works you're just going to have to wait and find out next episode thanks for listening everybody Everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Doug. And I'm Terry. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make, make something, something of it? it?